get your family vehicles ready for summer driving with early Memorial Day deals at Dobbs. Click on GoToDobbs.com for money, saver retire, and service deals today. Dobbs. With 43 locations, real deals are always close by. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Get ready for winter driving at Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers with super deals on tires, including up to $200 on new Goodyear tires, plus oil changes, brakes, batteries, and more. For value and savings, click on gotodobbs.com today. Time now for the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Yes, yes, yes. Come on in. The water is warm. How do we do? Scale of one to ten. Give it like a uh, three. Give it like a five. Alongside Alex Ferrari, Tanner Hendricks, and I'm Brandon Kylie. It is not the balloon party. It is instead an extended edition of BK and Ferrari. How long have you been planning on trying to do that? Uh, about 27 seconds. Uh, okay. <laughs> Since basically the end of Tanner Sports Center update. I was going to say. Which, by the way, was a tremendous Sports Center uh, update, Tanner. Thank you, thank you know you. what? I could. I think it could have been better if it would have had a partner during. Okay. Or acapella. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, acapella. no music underneath. I, I think you need to learn what the definition of acapella <laughs> is, though, first. But right, let's we, go for it. No, no, you guys can get involved I'll in the show later. throughout the day today. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line. We'd love to hear from you throughout the morning, especially coming up until 11 o'clock as we have the extended portion of the show. Alex, I wanted to start with the story that I'm guessing if Tim was on today, he would probably be discussing for the majority of his show. And that is the piece that came up on St. Louis Post-Dispatch's website yesterday, stltoday.com, about the Rams settlement negotiations, quote, likely to stretch on for months, end quote, here in St. Louis. So six months ago. The city of St. Louis and the county and, of course, the owners of the Dome came to a settlement with the Rams and the NFL over $790 million. And since then, there's basically been no update. It's just been, okay. so there's $790 million that has been written in a check to the the city, county and the owners of the Dome to do with whatever they want. And now we're just kind of waiting on what exactly it is that they're going to do with all of this money. And Alex, according to this piece over in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, and it's Jacob Barker who wrote this, they don't have any clue what they're doing with this. They're going to hold on St. Louis, like the politician sides don't have an idea what they're doing with all this money. They don't even know how they're splitting it up. Oh, that's good. Among the three parties. That's going to be great for St. Louis. So the Kansas city mayor, former Kansas city mayor, Sly James has now started to a mediation between the three parties to try to figure out, all right, 
boys, how are we going to do this? Boys and girls, how are we going to do this? How are we splitting up, divvying up this money among the three of you? Some of them want it to be split into thirds. I'm sure others, the city and the county, probably want it to be split up where they're getting a bigger portion of that money. Meanwhile, all of this money is just sitting in an account. And instead of getting something closer to like a 15% return, it's getting a like 2% return on investment right now because it's just sitting here. And so they're wondering, do we put it in this higher interest rate fund where it's going to probably take longer for us to get to it because it's going to sit in there longer? Or do we leave it in this account, hopefully do something with it sooner rather than later? I say all that to say this. None of this is surprising. All of us saw this coming whenever it was immediately released that they were going to be coming to the settlement. It just doesn't make it any less frustrating that we're sitting here in mid-June and the city doesn't know what it's doing with the money or how much money it's getting. The county doesn't know what it's doing with the money or how much money it's getting. And neither does the ownership group of the Dome. These three parties seem to not have any clue as to how they're going to go about this. And that is so unbelievably frustrating, given the way everything went down with the settlement. Yeah, and because we are all optimists, we're hoping that it gets put towards something for the better of the city, county, and the, that's the longest name ever, Regional Convention and Sports <laughs> Complex <laughs> Authority. Could have come up with something a little bit more uh, clever than like that. an acronym or something? Something yeah. better, RCSCA, whatever, it doesn't matter. The optimistic side is hoping, but then there's that also side that it's like the angel and the devil on your shoulder. The angel's like, yeah, it's going to go towards something good. Don't worry about it. But then the devil's over here going, you know what's going to happen, right? And you know you could have just had a football team. Like, does that does that sneak into your heads at all no, with that it's, settlement? It's been reported since that that was just never apparently an option. Well, then what's with what's-his-face coming on and telling us that it was an option? <laughs> Mike Florio? Yeah. <laughs> Mike Florio, buddy. <laughs> That's just how, how it works, I guess. Mike Florio. I mean, in all reality, like, I, I think the— the winning side of it all was getting the money from Stan Kroenke, right? That's what everyone was hoping for, that he would yeah. be publicly uh, put out there for it. But now it's just, I don't know, it's just going to be uh, salt in the wound more than anything when it comes to them not figuring out where it's going to go and it's sitting there for a really long time and then it not accure any interest and it's just going to sit there and then finally they're going to come up with something and then 10 years from now we're going to have ourselves a loop trolley. Oh, nice. but it- That doesn't work still. $790 million, you're telling me a loop trolley is not going to work? That loop trolley better fly. Do you know hey, how much money they fair, put into that thing? <laughs> not be, $790 million. Know, man. To be fair, I was in Texas last week. They couldn't figure out their trolley system. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't working. So, so maybe it's a trolley yeah, thing. It's a trolley issue. San Francisco is the only spot, I guess. But yeah, it is frustrating to see that it's this is just a holdup in which it's just trying to figure out the nitty-gritty of how much money's going where in all these scenarios because you'd like to think that they would have been able to get this process moving along a lot quicker, especially once you got that settlement. It should have been, okay, boom, we've got the money. Let's get we've got the figure at least let's figure out where we're going to go with this and let's try and get this process going quickly and the fact that it's still going on because honestly i had kind of already forgotten about the lawsuit and what had happened because it's been a while since it's been settled so the fact that it's still going on it's just frustration and it's frustrating to see that it's taken a while for them to get this all mingled out and figure out where everything is going but at the end of the day like isn't this shouldn't we have expected this yeah like going into the lawsuit you yeah, you were hoping a lot of money comes out of it, but you knew it was going to get to this point at some at some point or another. You knew it was going to end up here where we're talking about, well, nobody can decide on what to do with the money. Yeah, none of this is surprising, and that's the worst part of it all. It's like the, the greatest fear that we all had when St. Louis quote-unquote won was, okay, now what? 
Like, uh, great, you got $800 million, which according to the story over in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch is actually about $500 million after everything that goes towards the uh, taxes and the attorney's fees and all of those different things. Yeah, I saw the lawyers got like $290 million. <laughs> they, they That's did pretty incredible. Well, uh, to say the least. Not not surprising <laughs> that they wanted to wrap this thing up. Right. <laughs> we all should have. <laughs> so $500 million, even if you divided it up into the three different groups, it's like $165 million per party. It's, that's a good amount of money. It's not nothing, but I mean, I, I just wish that we could just get to that place where it's like, all right, maybe it's $200 million going towards the city, 200 towards the uh, county, and then $100 million towards the owners of the dome. But see, that's the problem, though. It When you have, and I'm not trying to get political here, but when you have the city and county divided. Oh, it's brutal, it, dude. It's never, you're never going to, like, you're never going to have this fixed because it's always going to be, well, this is our sum of money. This is our sum of money. Whereas if it could just be cohesion where it's like, hey, we're going to divvy this up to everybody, but we're all in it together for the betterment of St. Louis. That's where, that's where. That's where success is accomplished, right? Yeah, it's supposed to be, but unfortunately, the city-county divide is just Everybody not something that's ever other. going to uh, be solved. So now you're in this place where, like, the county wants to do things in the county. The city wants to do things in the city, and they're kind of pulling against one another. And then, oh, by the way, hey, we're the Dome. Uh, we, we, we want some money as well. We feel like no. we were done wrong because we had a permanent tenant, and now we have... No permanent tenants. PK, it's the Regional Convention and Sports Complex Authority. I'm just going to call them the the owners of the dome. Get it right, please. Um, (laughs) And so, like, all of these different parties are fighting for different means, and what you're left with is nobody actually being served for the greater good. And that's where we're at. So, yay, St. Louis. That's where we are right now with $500 million just sitting in a bank account, not getting the amount of interest that they would like it to get. And that's where we're at. So on the plus side of things, over on the other side of the state, Alex, something (laughs) yesterday that was really cool that happened. Does this feel good what you're about to do right now? No, um, but I have a bucket list of sports things that I would like to do before I die. And one of the things on that bucket list is going to a World Cup game. We're going to Qatar this year? <laughs> Let's go! Are you paying for everybody's money? Yeah, Peloton finances. Come on, uh, BK and Ferrario on the road going to Qatar. So the uh, much. I got an Ethernet cable. The World <laughs> Cup announced in 2026 the host cities yesterday. And there are, I think it's six different cities within the United States that are going to be host cities. New York, L.A., Dallas, San Francisco, Miami. I undersold how many. Atlanta, <laughs> Seattle. You said you said six, six, map, it was total. Uh, Philadelphia, <laughs> Kansas City, and Boston. Those are going to be the host cities. Six? It's 11. Uh, for the 2026 World Cup. Alex, like, listen, I, I'm not getting too far into the Kansas City side of things. I, I don't care. that That's the other side of the state. We don't have to worry about that. But. They, we can drive three and a half hours and go to a World Cup sporting event. Is this something that's on your bucket list, even if it doesn't include the United States? Because we don't know until pool play who's going to be playing where. But is this something that you will be like paying an arm and a leg to get whatever kind of ticket that you possibly can just to get in for that kind of an event? Uh, I wish I could say that I would love to pay an arm and a leg to get in, but I got two kids on the way, so I probably not, but this is a bucket list item for me. I mean, obviously the big four sporting events are one things that I'd love to go to. And I've been to a Stanley cup final. I've been to a world series. It's just the other two, but I did, this was when I was working at Camel X. I, I didn't, uh, I worked at an exhibition game. I think it was Chelsea and man city or man United. One of the, I don't know which one's which to be honest with you. What do you mean? Man city versus man. U. 
No, but it was it was Chelsea versus Man City. I think that's what it was. Okay. Regardless, it was at Bush Stadium. I mean, there's Manchester City and Man United. Well, that's so why I'm asking. I mean, somebody's like, going somebody's to tell me I'm an idiot because it's not the exhibition game. That's fine. But it was the exhibition game at Bush Stadium. This was back in like 2013 or 14. Sure. And this had no implications for a World Cup. It was just an exhibition game. And it was probably one of the more exciting and soccer matches. it's not the matches. team either, typically, when they yeah, come over no. to the U.S. And that was one of the more exciting soccer matches that I had been to. Frankly, it was one of the big ones, too. But... Probably I one of the only loved, soccer matches you've ever been to, let's Well, be no, I've been to a couple at okay, Lindenwood. Not a big deal. Lindenwood, I don't know if you've heard this, but they've won soccer before. D1 now. That's right. Well, D2 at the time. But I would love to go to one of these, and I think you mentioned it. The Masters is on that list. Yep. Maybe a U.S. Open, I think, would probably be exciting to go to. Um, but, yeah, this this is up there in terms of I'd love to go see. Yeah, this is definitely on my bucket list because, really, when I started getting into soccer, it was watching the, I think it was the 2010 World Cup, and I think it was in South Africa. And it's seen the best of the best from all these countries around the world. So absolutely, it's on a list for me. And, and, and it's the year in which the World Cup is expanding as well. And I'm a big soccer fan myself. I love watching the uh, leagues over in in, uh, the, in Europe. So this is definitely on the bucket list for me. And whether the U.S. is playing or not, I, I know I'm going to see a good soccer game no matter what. And I went to the World Cup qualifying game. I think this was for... The 2018 World Cup, when of course the U.S. didn't make it, but they played St. Grenadine in the Vincent Islands, I think it was, and they won the game. It was a blowout. I mean, it was a team that should easily beat. It was like eight one, nine one, something like that. But it was an awesome environment to see. Just watching that kind of competition level, competing for those guys, competing for their country, trying to get to a World Cup. So being at a World Cup game itself is definitely on a bucket list for me. I, I can't wait till BK takes us to Qatar this year for the oh, 2022 man. World Cup. And to imagine <laughs> like how much money he's going to have to drop for that. I that's know. that's. That's impressive on your end, man. If you, if well, let's say for a moment, Good money teammate. was no object, and you could go to any of these venues. So New York, a MetLife Stadium where the Giants play, L.A. SoFi Stadium. I'm assuming that's not going to be on either of Boo. your lists. Let's be honest here. Dallas yeah. at AT and T Stadium, San Francisco at Levi's where uh, the the 49ers play, Miami at Hard Rock Stadium, Atlanta where the Falcons play at Mercedes Benz Stadium, Seattle where the uh, Seahawks play, Houston at NRG. Philly at the link, Kansas City at Arrowhead, or Boston at Gillette Stadium. Which of those would you most want to go to? Again, money's not an object. You just get to go. Let's say it's paid all all inclusive, paid to that specific venue. Where would you want to go? Probably Dallas. Probably go see one, see Jerry's World, but that environment that would probably be on mine. See, I think I would probably go to San Francisco. I think that's where I would want to go. I'd want to go to the Bay and but go. That's watch just because you went to Dallas already. Stadium. Well, no, you were yeah, in Texas. I was in Texas, but I, I would want to watch a soccer game outdoors. I wouldn't want it to be in a dome. That doesn't really fit soccer, in my opinion. Agreed. I would want to go to Seattle. First of all, Seattle great great soccer community. Uh, they have an unbelievable or one of the best MLS teams over the last few years. And I want to go to that stadium. I, it's known as one of the loudest outdoor stadiums in the country. That is probably where I would pick as my number one choice. If I couldn't go there, I think Philly would probably be second for me. I have no interest in going to MetLife. Everybody that I've heard that has gone to MetLife before uh, suggests that it's like the most cookie cutter of all cookie cutter venues. So I don't have a whole lot of interest in going there, but Philly would be, I think be a really cool place to be able to go for something like this. Uh, did you guys see the video yesterday of Washington DC, their watch party as they were announcing where the different venues were going to be? 
because there no, was but that's th- incredible. They had a watch party for that venue announcement. That's awesome. So they had a watch party for it in Washington D.C. and of course Washington D.C. was not selected. And the Whoa. the amount of dread within that that building was incredible. I I felt terrible. I felt bad watching it, but it was it was wild. I can't remember. I didn't get D.C. slighted by. I mean Kansas City probably. Yeah. You feel good about yourself? <laughs> no, I'm just saying, like, of the uh, 11... capital gets taken over by BKKC. Of the 11 venues, I think it's 10 of the 14 biggest cities were selected, and then there's Kansas City, which is, I think, the 31st biggest uh, city on the map. Um, so, I mean, it's a pretty cool thing for them. I wish St. Louis could have something like this, but... They just don't have a stadium well, to be able to talk to the regional convention and sports <laughs> complex <laughs> that's, authority. That's what the money needs to go towards. <laughs> Coming up in 15 minutes, we'll open the real BK and Ferrario show. Are you excited to see the future of the Cardinals catcher position? Because we're going to see it starting this weekend. But next, let's dive into some NFL quick hitters here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. And I'm Brandon Kylie. Let's dive into some NFL quick hitters as we finish up the balloon party here, an extended edition of BK and Ferrario, in other words. So Lamar Jackson, whose other words? Lamar Jackson okay. doesn't have a contract extension. I don't matter. Why? Because he doesn't have an agent right now. It's him and his mother who are representing him. Wait, what? I'm not no. kidding. This his mom true. is not representing him. It's him and his mother. This feels like uh, who was the left tackle with Seattle that represented himself and then got Dwayne sh- Brown? Yeah, he got screwed over. Yeah, yeah. so uh, that's, that's his representation currently. And the Ravens are basically telling anybody who will listen, hey, we want to re-sign Lamar. We want to give him all of this money. It's his mom that doesn't want to. And Lamar doesn't want to re-sign. And nobody really seems to know why he's holding out as long as he has. But it might be because he's pulling a Kirk Cousins or a Dak Prescott where he plays this thing out and tries to get the most leverage possible. Here's Diana Rossini on ESPN. If I'm Lamar, I'm looking at Deshaun Watson's deal saying, give me that and we'll call it a day and I'll sign. I don't necessarily believe that that's going to be the case. If you told me that Lamar was going to make 50 mil a year, let's say, like we saw Aaron Rodgers, I'd be really surprised. I I think it's going to be more in the mid-40s, but if I'm Lamar, I'm going after every dollar I can get knowing how much he does for that team because he pretty much does it all. Can I ask you this? Yeah. Tinfoil Ferrario moment for you. What if Lamar is holding out so he can become a free agent and go to Florida? What if he's holding out so he can go to either Miami and play with those guys or Tampa when Tom Brady retires? Because if he's going to be a free agent, he's from Florida. That's why I originally thought this. Like if you're holding out, Baltimore just traded away your number one wide receiver at the draft. And you got one more year with Baltimore, and then you know Miami's putting all of their eggs into the Tua basket. And if that doesn't work, well, Miami's going to be saying, well, we need a quarterback. Or if Tom Brady retires after this year, Tampa's going to be saying, we need a quarterback. Here's the here's the wrinkle that gets a little tough for him. They've got two more years of team control because yeah. they can use the franchise tag next year, and then they can use the franchise tag in 2024 as well. 
So he really isn't an actual free agent. This is what the Kirk Cousins route was. He, he had to wait until the, the franchise tags were done and then seven years, six years for him into his NFL career. He got to dictate the terms of where he wanted to go. So for Lamar, it's seven years into his career because they had the fifth year option. That's what he's currently playing at for a twenty three million dollar salary. He this holds year. out. Then he loses a, his free agency. Like it. it takes away a oh, year. Oh, so those two franchise tags, like if he holds out, they carry over and you're just... Yep. Yikes. That's what happened with Le'Veon Bell. You're is in a bad the franchise tag will Lamar. carry over if they want it to. So they've got seven years of club control basically over Lamar Jackson. So he's going to be under contract, no doubt about it, with the Ravens through his age 27 season. I respect the way that he's going about it in some ways. Now, it is super risky, especially yeah. the way that Lamar Jackson plays, because he is more at risk of getting hurt than most other quarterbacks around the league when he's running the way that he does. But, man, if he's really willing to do this and play it out, he could get the biggest contract in the history of the NFL if it works out for him, if he is still healthy. He's 27 years old, hitting the free agent market. Man, whether it's Miami at that point in time or Maybe it's Las Vegas decides that they want to do something else. Like there's a, a bunch of teams that would love to have Lamar Jackson as their starting quarterback. If he really wants to play this thing out full respect and kudos to him. It is just a crazy risky way to go about this. Yeah. I mean, it absolutely is. But if you're Lamar Jackson and I mean, for the most part, you've stayed fairly healthy playing the way that you've been playing and you really have had awful offensive line. You really haven't had much protection Maybe this is the route you go because you know you're going to get paid because you know Baltimore's in a position that if they don't have Lamar Jackson, I don't think they know that they have anything to have success. Yeah, he's the team right now. He's yeah. the identity of their entire roster. They've, And this is why I actually think he should stay in Baltimore because I think it's the best spot for him. They have built that entire team to his liking. Like they have multiple tight ends because he loves throwing to tight ends. They've got guys that can win on the outside because that's the way that he wants to throw. They've got an offensive line that two years ago was one of the best in the league last year. You're right, Alex. It was not very good, but they've built it back up this offseason, and it should go back to being one of the better units in the league this year. They have multiple running backs because that's the identity of the offense. I don't think he's going to find a better fit in terms of like winning than what he has currently in Baltimore. But if he's just looking to maximize his value in terms of the dollar figure, this is the way to do it. This is what Dak did. He played under the tag and he decided, you know what? I'm going to be able to bet on myself here. I'm not taking less money because you guys think that I'm an injury risk. I'm going to bet on myself and get the most money possible. Kirk Cousins is a poster child of this. Kirk Cousins was never one of the five to 10 best quarterbacks in the league. Never. Still isn't. He was the highest paid quarterback in the NFL at one point in time. Why? Because he was the only guy that made it to free agency. Quarterbacks do not get to free agency where multiple teams can bid on you. That's what Lamar Jackson could do here in a couple of years. I respect it. I, I do too, and but it is, as you said, risky as hell, especially the way he plays because Cousins you knew would basically be a guy that could get to free agency and be fairly healthy because he sits in the pocket. Lamar running around like that, that's going to be very difficult. And this year he kind of dealt with injuries too. Remember, he missed a handful of games this year. So very risky. I do respect it though. And to your point on in terms of, you know, Baltimore's that perfect fit. I don't know if Baltimore's where he would get that kind of Deshaun Watson contract. Agreed. I think it would be free agency where he would get that. But then that's that's the process of okay, you bring him in, sure, you spend that money, you got the quarterback, but you got to build the perfect system around Lamar. I don't think if you put him on like the You don't think the system would work if he was put on Miami's team? I think Miami would because I think Miami they have would guys that win after it. the catch. So like Tyreek Hill and Jalen Waddle, so those like, are guys that you could do the RPO game, the run pass option that you see honestly the the Ravens have done a lot of that over the years. 
you could do that in Miami and they're running quick slants. It's one quick read and boom, hit them and they, they're winning after the catch. So it could work. It's just it's going to take some time to get there. And then when he does get there, is he the same guy that he is right now when he's 25 years old, when he's 27 plus years old and they're investing 50 plus million dollars per year on a potentially fully guaranteed contract? If there's anybody else not named Deshaun Watson that could get that fully guaranteed deal, it probably is Lamar if he's willing to play this thing out past the couple of uh, franchise tags that he'll be under. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. We're going to be joined by Charlie Lindgren, the Blues backup goalie, now down in the AHL. They're going for the Calder Cup uh, this weekend against the Chicago Wolves. Charlie Lindgren's going to join the show coming up at 12.15. We've got Lawrence Bowers, the former Mizzou basketball player. Now he's in charge of NIL at Mizzou. Going to talk to him about all of that and the changing landscape with college athletics. That's coming up at 1 o'clock. But coming up next, we open our real show with... The future of the Cardinals catcher position, which we're going to get a glimpse of this weekend in Boston. We'll tell you about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Yeah, we've had the conversation, and um, honestly, we've got to see better at-bats out of kids. Um, he's working at it, but at some point, there has to be a, a change as far as what it looks like on the field. He had a couple good line drives when we were on the road to left field, um, but uh, yeah, we need to keep working at it. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. That was Ollie Marmel a few days ago talking about the Cardinals' lack of production from the catcher position. And Alex, the move has officially been made. According to Katie Wu, the Cardinals are putting 10-time All-Star catcher Yadier Molina onto the 10-day injured list. He is trying to recover from a sore knee that has ailed him for much of the 2022 season. According to Katie, this is something that is likely to last at least a few weeks. The Cardinals have made it official this morning. They are calling up Yvonne Herrera. Andrew Kisner is going to split some time with Herrera. Alex, we were going to talk about this a bit yesterday, but never really got to it. If you look at the production that the Cardinals have received so far this season from the catcher position, it's been bad. They're batting a combined 207 on the year. They're getting on base about 25% of the time, and their slugging percentage is abysmal. It's at 278. If you go by just overall offensive production, they're 25th in baseball, the only National League team that has got less production offensively out of their catchers is the Pittsburgh Pirates. We're about to watch what the future of the Cardinals catcher position looks like with Yvonne Herrera and Andrew Kisner. Are you excited about this, Alex? I know obviously all of us wanted Yachty to be healthy, ready to go, none of this to happen. But if we set that aside for a moment, are you excited to see what Yvonne Herrera and Kisner can do? I think, well, not that I think I'm absolutely excited about this. I mean, Andrew Kisner, he, he's just, he's kind of a roller coaster ride for me. He's like the screaming eagle. Like, you know, you're going to have some type of fun at some point, but going to be a little bit of a rocky road throughout and that's what it's been you went on a stretch there in may where it felt like andrew kisner looked like you know what this guy might actually be the starting catcher for the cardinals next year when yadi calls it a career and then it dipped off a little bit and as the ali marmal cut that you played coming back i mean he just he really talked about how andrew kisner needs to be more productive there 
And all the while, Yvonne Herrera has been really progressing in AAA. Like last season, I remember us talking about him and saying, maybe this isn't going to be the offense from Yvonne Herrera. You know, the defense is going to be there. They've talked about how great of a defensive catcher he is. But now you got a guy who's hitting 291 and an 824 OPS for AAA. Now, I mean, granted, a lot of guys are hitting for AAA right now, but when you got a catcher as hot as Yvonne Herrera is and defensively as apt as he can be, I think I'm more excited about the Yvonne Herrera site more than I'm seeing both of these guys. Yeah, I think that's fair because, look, it's no shot against Andrew Kisner. I actually have been a big fan of Kisner's since he was in the minor leagues, thinking if he got everyday playing opportunities, his bat was going to carry himself here at the major league level. Defensively, I wasn't sure what he was going to be. And he's not really getting everyday opportunities, but he's getting pretty close. And that's what Marmol has said. You know, he's getting about three, four oppor- or three, four uh, games a week, and he's still struggling at the plate. So maybe it's just not going to work with him offensively. I think he's been pretty good defensively, and the way he handles a pitching staff reminds me a little bit of Yachty. I'm not saying he's at a Yachty level because Yachty's a Hall of Famer in the terms of how he handles a pitching staff. But Kisner's definitely learned from Yachty and handling a pitching staff and how he goes about it. I mean, last year he was personal catcher for basically Carlos Martinez and a handful of guys, and he's kind of done that this year as well. I'm excited to see Yvonne Herrera, though. I mean, you mentioned his numbers in AAA. Last year in AA, he didn't hit very well. 231 batting average, and I thought, okay, maybe he's going to be that guy that comes up, and he's going to be the early Yachty, where it's basically just defense, don't worry about the bat. And then he went and he played winter ball this year, played really well down there, and it's carried on to Memphis. So I'm excited to see what he he looks like and when he starts getting some reps here. I want to see basically a 50-50 split for however long Yachty is out. I want to see 50-50 between Kisner and um, Yvonne Herrera, because I really want to see this is basically the part one of what's probably going to be a two-part battle for the starting job for next year and i'm excited to see what yvonne herrera looks like the dude's built like a tank so he can hit <laughs> yeah. home runs like tyler o'neill he probably strike out a lot either like he's only got 19 strikeouts so far for memphis i'm this so year. glad you brought that up his plate approach is very similar to what we've seen so far from brendan donovan oh. We're getting two Brendan Donovans? I don't know if it's going to carry Does over. Does fall off? I don't think he's got we'll the flow. Out. I don't think he's got the flow uh, He can get that. He's He's got the tank of a body, though. You, if you have not seen what Yvonne Herrera looks like. I saw him like squatting like 400 pounds. He enjoyed pounds his offseason, so to he speak. He is huge. Like, he looks like a major league catcher right now. In, in the minor leagues over the last three years, here's what his walk rate has been. 2019 in, in single A, 12% walk rate. That's really, really good. 2021, double A, 14% walk rate. And so far this year, he's had a 12.5% walk rate for triple A as well. And he's been striking out roughly 20% of the time this year. Alex, as you mentioned, he's down to 15% in terms of his strikeout rate, which is phenomenal. That's that's very similar to what we're watching right now in terms of the walk rate and strikeout rate to Brendan Donovan at the big league level. Now, those might go down. The, the strikeout rate might go up. The walk rate might go down a little bit when you get to the big leagues and you see different pitching and they can command the ball a little better. But that's a really good sign. If you've got that kind of an approach at the plate, it should help you sustain what that offensive profile is. And so far this year, he's been very good at the plate. And that's been the issue for Andrew Kisner so far. Yeah, somebody just texted on the Air Comfort Service text line 657-0 to my point where I said that it's dipped off for Kisner and someone said how is 541 OPS dipping off that's terrible because at the beginning of the season he was hitting around 849 OPS yeah I mean the 541 OPS is is terrible but I mean the guy at the end of April middle of May we were talking about how Andrew Kisner should be seeing more games started than Yadier Molina yeah no you're you're right on this like his first month he had an 800 OPS 
In May, he was at 600. In June, in nine games, he's at a 205 OPS. Like, whether you want to say a dip off completely fell off the face of the earth, like whatever it is, it's not working right now for Andrew Kisner. And Ali Marmol has talked about this. Andrew Kisner's talked about this. In the offseason, he changed his swing to get more of that fly ball, the swing king path, right? Where he's he's trying to hit it in the air more often than not. And that worked early on, but now he's almost gone too far in that direction where everything is going straight up and it's just leading to a ton of pop-ups. And Ali Marmol told Katie Wu, quote, when you're backing up Yachty in previous years, it can be really tough. But now Kisner's in there three, four times a week. The expectation is no longer you're trying to find your timing when you're the backup catcher. Now you're getting a real opportunity. So the expectations are different. He knows that. And now he's just got to get it going offensively. I think that's a totally fair way to look at it. And what I am really interested in is if he doesn't get it going offensively and Devon Herrera comes up to the big leagues and does what we've seen all of these other guys do, right? You saw this with Yepes early on and he's still been pretty productive, although he's fallen off a little bit. Don't say that, man. We've seen it with Brendan Donovan, who has just been tremendous from the moment that he came up to the big leagues. We've seen Nolan Gorman come up, struggle a little bit, make a couple of adjustments. He looks really good at the plate right now. All of these guys that have come up have produced at the MLB level. If Herrera comes up and does something similar where he's he's posting similar numbers to what he's done in AAA, is there a way for him to take this job away from Andrew Kisner whenever Yachty does come off of the IL? Like, are these next three weeks an audition to see who ends up being the backup catcher after Yadier Molina returns? I think they have to be. I mean, Andrew Kisner has not been hitting the ball well. Defensively, he hasn't been a problem, but offensively, you need more, as Ollie mentioned. So if you're getting Yvonne Herrera coming up to the bigs and he has, I, I don't want to say Nolan Gorman production because like that was just unreal in the first couple of games, but if you're getting anything that seems like you have the possibility of igniting a spark, maybe like the end of the season for Edmundo Sosa, where it started to turn on, you're thinking, oh, damn, I don't know how you send Yvonne Herrera back down because the argument for, well, you want to get him in consistent at bats and he could get that at AAA. Well, he could get that at the big leagues right now because Yadier Molina, even when he comes off of this injured list, I mean, I think we all can agree right now, Yadier Molina is getting the starts with Adam Wainwright when he's healthy. And that's about it. Maybe an extra one in there, but you're at the point now where you need somebody who can come in two, three times in a week for the Cardinals to start. So if Yvonne Herrera comes up and has an above average start, if Kisner's got options, which I believe he does, he's got one one left. Why wouldn't you send Andrew Kisner down and say, hey, we need you to go get some consistent at bats to get yourself right. Like they just did with Paul DeYoung, like they've done with Lars Nupar, like they might do with some of these younger players. Why wouldn't you do that for Kisner and say, Herrera, you're our guy now. Go on a little bit of a stretch here and let's see what you got. I, I think there's a chance that they could do it, especially because we've seen the aggressiveness now with the front office in terms of being willing to do it with Paul DeYoung, as you mentioned, Alex. So I wouldn't put it past the Cardinals' front office if they said, you know what, Herrera did a really good job, and let's just say this is a two-week stretch and they get, I don't know, four or five starts each in that, or it'd be more than that. But they split this time and Herrera's the better catcher, then yeah, I could see them doing it. I just think they will still be a little more cautious in terms of putting Herrera right behind Yachty. I think what they'll probably do is they probably just send Herrera down and say, okay, you did your job. You did a very good job when you were up here with us, but we want you to continue to get 
bats where you're probably starting five of six games in AAA, working with a pitching staff, because this isn't just going to come down to offensive production from Ervon Herrera. He's going to have to show that, A, his defense is still going to translate from AAA here to the big leagues, which I don't think that's going to be an issue for him. How's he going to handle a pitching staff? How's he going to call a game? And then offense is going to be the number one thing for the third thing on the list. To me, offense is the third thing I'm keeping an eye on for Ervon Herrera. Look, I want him to be hitting like he is in AAA, but... Let's be honest, the, the Cardinals are defense-first-minded team still, in my opinion, and I think part of that is that catcher still. Yadier Molina is still a very good catcher behind the plate defensively. It's not what he once was, but he's still very good. Andrew Kisner, I think, has been a very good catcher behind the plate defensively so far this year. He's done a really so good job. Year. That's been the probably the best part of his game so yeah. far this year. And the way I mentioned earlier, the way he handles the pitching staff, I think he does a very good job of handling the pitching staff. Those are two things I'm going to be keeping an eye on on Avron Herrera. I wouldn't be stunned if he takes that backup catcher spot when we're done with this stretch and Yachty comes back, but I still think they're going to lean more towards Kisner and give Herrera more time to develop. They don't I, want to rush him. I get the defense, and this is a defensive-minded team, but, I mean, the message is all out there by Ali Marmol saying Andrew Kisner needs to start producing. If you're not producing offensively, obviously you're – manager is going to be speaking about you so as important as defense is i think you need to start hitting in the position also everything we've heard about Avon herrera is that defensively he's tremendous you know so that's that, going to be there that's part of it as well is if he can handle the staff and that's a big part of it like defensively maybe he's really good behind the plate he's very good at throwing guys out at second all of those different things can be uh fine and dandy but if you're not good at handling the pitching staff the mental aspect of the game that's where things could and, go awry for you as a young catcher. Wouldn't you want Yvonne Herrera up here? Like, if this is the guy that you're expecting to take over as the catcher next season, wouldn't you want him up here for a little extended time with Yachty healthy so that you could be around Yachty or Molina? Like, he's done it in, in spring training and camps. Now you could do it in the major league season when he's back. I tend to agree with Tanner in terms of what I think they will do. I think they will probably send Herrera back down to get him everyday opportunities at the AAA level to continue that development. What I would like to see is if he ends up outperforming Andrew Kisner over the next two to three weeks, Yvonne Herrera stays up. Whoever is playing better, you're the one that gets to keep this job. Competition is a good thing, and the Cardinals have a whole lot of it right now. Having a guy competing for a job right now, I don't think that's anything but a positive for the St. Louis Cardinals. 65780 is the air comfort service text line to get involved in the show. Do you want to answer this from the 636? Guys, do you think that this move to the IL will impact the chance of the battery record for Yadier Molina and Adam Wainwright? Based on where they're at right now, uh, Yadi and Wayno need nine more starts together to be able to pass the current record for most starts by a battery mates. If Wayno stays on schedule he is expected to have 20 more starts this season. So they could miss 11 starts, which is essentially a month or more, about six weeks worth of starts for Wayno, and still end up breaking this record. So to answer the question, no, I do not think that it will impact the battery record. Honestly, I think even if Yachty is only starting one out of every five days where he's literally starting exclusively for Adam Wainwright, they're going to get them that record. Yeah. That's something. That's probably why Yachty came back this year was for that specific. I feel like there's no way Yachty goes on the injured list if there's a chance that they miss that record. Yeah, I, I think he'll be back ready to go before that has any sort of risk of not being able to take place. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, the Blues might be better by comparison to the rest of the Western Conference, even if they stay at the same level that they were a year ago. We'll explain why coming up at 1130. But next, the NBA Finals came to an end last night. The MVP of these finals completely changed the way that a lot of people will look at him because he won MVP last night. We'll talk about if that's fair next year on 101 ESPN. 
We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Warriors are ready to celebrate. And that'll do it. It's over. The Golden State Warriors return to a familiar place. They're on top of the NBA world. The fourth title in eight years. The Dubs dynasty is still very much alive. The NBA Finals came to an end last night alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson. I am Brandon Kylie. Stephen Curry named the NBA Finals MVP. It is his fourth NBA title. It is the first time that he has been named NBA Finals MVP. And Alex, this was the one thing that was missing from his resume. They're at different levels in their careers. I understand that. But it's kind of like when we talk about Paul Goldschmidt here in St. Louis, where there's one thing that's really missing. You could argue, too, with the World Series. But the one thing that's missing from his individual resume is the MVP. The one thing that people pointed to with Steph was, hey, in those NBA Finals, right, wrong, or indifferent, The three that they won, it was somebody else who ended up getting the MVP. So can you really name him as one of the greats of this era if that's the case? I disagree with that assessment, but that was the argument against him. Now that's taken off of the table. He won in 15, he won in 17, he won in 18, and now we won again in 2022 with the MVP. And I heard earlier today, Tim Legler, excuse me, talking on ESPN about what this specific series meant for Steph Curry and how he is viewed within the NBA. Here's what he had to say. I want to hear what your reaction is to this on the other side. This will be called the Steph Curry era. There's no question. It's about him, his, his unique style of play, and what he has done to revolutionize what good defense looks like and to guard this particular team because of the spacing, the distance, mm-hmm. the skill set. You saw it on full display in this entire series. Do you agree with his, his initial comment there? This will be called the Steph Curry era. When we look back at this decade, he's played for the Warriors since 2009. He really became this version of Steph Curry in like 2010, 2011-ish. Do you think we are going to look back at this as being the quote-unquote Steph Curry era? I think so. I, I don't, I mean, the only other person you could argue with him would be LeBron James because LeBron's had, what, three championships in that same stretch that Steph has had four championships in. They both have the same amount of championships now, and I, I'm with you. I, I don't like the narrative of, well, he doesn't have a, a series MVP or a championship MVP, so it's hard to sit there and talk about it. Look, the guy leads NBA history in three-pointers made. You've got four championships, and in my opinion, Steph Curry has been the piece in the middle of it all, regardless of Kevin Durant or Klay Thompson or Draymond Green. So I'm with you. I think he is a part of this era. It's so hard to say it's solely his era, though, because, I mean, LeBron James has to be in that conversation also, right? I don't think so. I think this is Stephen Curry's era. I mean, he's changed the way we view the game of basketball. I mean, he he basically created. I mean, you see stuff on Twitter all the time. Well, Steph ruined the game of basketball because it's now a three point shooting era, and that started with Stephen Curry. And he's got the leg up on LeBron when you look at finals. I believe he's what two and one or three and one in the NBA Finals against LeBron James. And I get it; it's not a one, one of those doesn't count. Which one doesn't count? I think it was twenty fifteen when 
the Cavs' entire team was hurt. Was I don't count that one. Well, whatever. But it's technically three and Kyrie one. Kyrie Irving won them that championship that year anyway. So, so okay. but <laughs> Just but, like Anthony Davis won it for him in the Lakers oh, okay. 2020. So <laughs> right. Well, and if you think about it, Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh won Get the championship in 12 and 14. <laughs> so this guy hasn't even won a championship. That's fair. That's fair. Someone uh, can't do it himself. But I, I, I have to view this as the Stephen Curry here because he just changed fundamentally the way you view the game of basketball. Now it is the space the floor out and it's basically get the best shot is now the three-point shot and Steph created that he created the I mean LeBron had the buzz around the game and it's, it's not like Steph brought basketball straight into the forefront of the American television but I mean he made you view the game differently of hey the three-point shot is actually exciting to watch a guy that can ball handle the way that Steph wasn't Ray Curry does. A little that too though yeah but he was more of a guy that wasn't a point he was a shooting guard he was off the ball he was St- also a just pure scorer early in his career like yeah. he was a guy that was super athletic played above the rim Ray, Ray Allen was a stud and, and Curry's always been the guy that's the ball handler that can make guys miss he can help feed teammates he's also he's just an incredible shooter as you mentioned has the most three-point uh shots in NBA history so yeah this is the Stephen Curry era and the fact that he has and I get it some people will say well he had KD as part of those team two of those wins but he does have the head-to-head record over LeBron James in terms of NBA finals and that's what a lot of people are going to look at I think this is the Stephen Curry era I think he is the most influential basketball player of this era I think it will still be viewed as the LeBron James era because I think people view LeBron as being better over the course of his career than Steph now, we can argue if that's right or not, and maybe that's a different conversation, but I think that LeBron is going to go down as the second greatest basketball player to ever play in a lot of people's minds, behind only Michael Jordan. And if you've got that guy that's playing in your same era, it's almost hard for me to say that this was Steph's era, but nobody's been more influential. Like I, I'm trying to think of even in any other sport over the last that's 20 years. That's what I was going to ask you. What other athlete for their sport has changed the narrative of the game? It's interesting, man, because like he has almost done and it's not a rule change necessarily, but the style with which the game is played, he's basically been what Bob Gibson was for Major League Baseball, where they had to literally change the rules of the sport because the pitching was so dominant in that era. In particular, you look back at that year that Bob Gibson had like it's that kind of level of influence that Steph has had. I mean, I remember early on, and I think it was 2015, when the Warriors played against the Cavs in the NBA Finals. And I remember listening to uh, Charles Barkley in some of his analysis early on in the series. He was like, I'm taking the Cavs because you can't win with shooting. Jump shooters don't win championships. Now, if we had that exact same conversation today, seven years later, nobody has that take. In fact, everybody has the opposite take. The take now is surround LeBron James with shooters. Or what do the Dallas Mavericks need to do? Get Luka more shooting. What do the Denver Nuggets need to do? Get shooting around Jokic. What do the uh, Milwaukee Bucks do? They're going to get shooting around Giannis. It has completely changed what feels necessary for you to win championships in the NBA. So in terms of influence... I can't think of anybody really in the last 20 years that has changed the game and revolutionized it, moved it forward, modernized it in the way that Stephen Curry has. And I can't really think, honestly, in other sports, guys who have done that in recent years. I'm not sure that there has been one, honestly. I I wonder if 10 years from now, five years from now, McDavid's that guy in hockey. Because teams, I feel like, are changing the big heaviness going towards speed. Like, I wonder how many teams are going to turn their mindset towards 
the speed element because of players like Connor McDavid. And it's so hard in hockey because it's a team sport. Now, basketball is as well, but there's five guys on the ice and one guy can change the outcome of a game where McDavid can also. He's the only closest one I can think of. Because I don't know if you could say that about baseball other than what BK said with Bob Gibson. He's a good one. And the only reason I didn't bring him up because I didn't think about the speed element with the NHL is, is he really the guy that you're going to pinpoint as the first guy to really bring speed into the game? He or Nathan McKinnon. Yeah, but doesn't it come back a little bit? Like, wasn't Crosby kind of a speedster when he no. got up, too? I mean, Crosby was more skill with the But you look back on the, the 90s, there were guys that had that speed element. Um, there, there were guys, but... I think... Tell me if I'm wrong here, Alex, but it feels like hockey is almost cyclical. Like where, oh, where you go in, is, yeah. you go in this, there's a seven year st- stretch where it's about speed and skill. And then there's a seven year stretch where it's like, oh, you got to be the heaviest hulking team that you can possibly find. And then it just kind of go- cycles back and forth. The NBA prior to this era was never about shooting like this. Yeah, it was always big guys underneath the net. Absolutely. If that you didn't was the era have, I grew up in. If you didn't have big guys, if you didn't have those wings that are like 6'6 six, six or above mm-hmm. that can go to the rim and attack the rim, you couldn't win. Like it, it was about trying to be able to play with that physicality, especially once you got into the NBA playoffs. And that's what Seth has changed. It's the entire mindset of what do you need in order to win. So I, I, I don't think that that really exists right now in the NHL. I don't think there's really that in baseball. Maybe you could argue it's not one player, but the bullpenning that that would be the equivalent of shooting now in, in the NBA, because 15 years ago, if you would have asked me what's more important when you get to the playoffs, starting pitching versus the the bullpen, I think most of us would have said starting pitching. And now you look at some of the rotations that these teams have that are going to the world series or going deep into the playoffs. It's really they're held up, propped up by what they have available to them in the pen. So I think that might be the closest thing in terms of stylistically what the two would be. But that's not one individual player. That's yeah. a group of players taking on the importance of what we've seen from Steph. Same with the home run ball. Now it's become yeah. more important than ever. But there's nobody to really pin that on in Major League Baseball because yeah. baseball's now gone through the true three outcomes. And part of that is because of the bullpen era that we're in now, and then also just the home run ball and the way the ball flies. Someone made a good point in saying Shohei Otani. Now, obviously, this, but how many uh, uh, does that start a trend of teams now with the DH where you have a pitcher who is also a power hitter? It's just so rare to be able to have those skill sets that are able to develop simultaneously. That's do we start and see more of it because of Shohei Otani? See, I don't think so because the Angels are already in a spot where they don't know what to do with him long term in terms of figuring a way to have him as a starter on a starter regimen and a a DH. Mason Wynn is a good kind of to look at. But for is this. he a power guy? I guess would be the question with Mason. No, Wynn. but he he was a guy who they viewed as being potentially a pitcher and a position player. You yeah. don't have to be a pure power hitter. Um, but the the problem is his development as a position player has gone at a higher level than where he is at right now as a pitcher. So you have to be at the same track. So like if you're a guy who your pitching is kind of lagging behind what you are as a position player, well, you could be in AAA for your position player side of things. But maybe your pitching is more at like a, a single A type of a level. Well, you can't do both at the same time because you've, you've got to be in triple A. That, that's where the team's going to want you. Maybe it's reversed. Your pitching is at a really high level. You can't hit triple A pitching. Well, then you're just going to be a pitcher once you get to that level. So it, I think he had the potential to be that, but it's just too hard for these teams to be able to develop those players having both tracks going at the same level at the same time. Who who would you say, if you look at football in terms of the way we're looking at the game and how it's changed Who's the quarterback you'd point to that Vic. now became a mobile quarterback? Would you say my? I can't really say Vic because Cunningham we didn't follow was that after him. Was he? 
I was saying, but it didn't really follow after there where it became like now you look at the NFL, I can name probably about ten to fifteen quarter ten quarterbacks that are pretty mobile. I wonder how many of those quarterbacks when you ask who was Im- impactful on your career, say Michael Vick. Yeah, but I, I don't know if he. Re- I don't view him as changing the game. I, it, like RG three was the one that was another mobile quarterback, but he didn't last long because the whole mindset was with Vic and RG three was you can't have a quarterback like that because they're not going to last long, and there's still kind of that hesitancy on it because we just talked about it with Lamar Jackson. People uh, are going to hate that I'm about to say this because of the political side of things, but I think you had to see somebody win while playing that way, and the guy that did that was Colin Kaepernick. Yeah. Colin Kaepernick got to the Super Bowl as a guy who m- a lot of his value came with him. Did he him get before Wilson? Russ was just different. Russ was a scrambler. He was kind of more in that Randall well, Cunningham guess, mode. And they still did run the ball a lot, like with Marshawn Lynch and defense. I mean, so, Colin yeah, Kaepernick right was the guy that came to the league, and he was running RPOs, and he was designed runs as a quarterback. And previously, it was like, why are you going to do that with your quarterback when he's the guy that's potentially going to get hurt? That doesn't make any sense. And then you saw it. It had so much value against the Green Bay Packers in particular in the NFC playoffs, where it's like, hey, we can utilize this as a significant part of our offense. And now it's almost a necessity. If you don't have a guy that can run, it's like, ooh, can you really build around that guy? That was the knock about Mac Jones. He had everything else. He's super accurate. He's got all of the brains you could possibly ask for. He's just a pocket passer. He's just a pocket passer. Can you win that way in today's game? So it might have been, honestly, Colin Kaepernick who changed the way that a lot of people viewed the value of having a guy that can run. But that that's basically what Steph Curry has been, but on just a completely different level in terms of being one of the probably 10 greatest players in the history of the NBA. I think you can say probably at yeah. this point. Yeah, I think I saw Kendrick Perkins tweet out last night that uh, after that championship win, Steph's at the table with Larry Bird, Shaquille O'Neal, Kobe Bryant, Magic Johnson, and LeBron James. How Where would you put him among this era? LeBron, Kobe, Duncan, Shaq, Steph, KD, CP3. I think he's behind. Above, above KD and C, CP3. I, I think he's behind everybody else. Behind Kobe, Duncan, Shaq, yeah. and LeBron? Yeah. I would so. probably agree with that. Yeah, that's probably how I would rank it. It's close it's, with LeBron, it's though. It's tough, too, with Duncan and Check because then you're talking about two kind of different eras in terms of but how I think the game the, is played. I think at the end of their careers, if Steph continues this and goes on to win a couple more championships or maybe one more championship, I think Steph I, might go above LeBron James. I, I do, too. I think if Steph can capture another MV, not an MVP, excuse me, another title, yeah. another two titles, I think he can surpass LeBron. I don't know if LeBron captures another title in his I career. Know, I don't know either. Unless he goes to a team. Unless he goes to Golden have, State. And look, I, I, I love watching <laughs> LeBron play, but I, I, I have a little bit more respect for how Steph's been able to win his four championships. Yeah. Than I do with LeBron. It's just more skill. Like I, I love LeBron James, but watching Steph, like it's it's all skill it, it, as opposed to just physical. Not just, not just the skill for me, but seeing him do it with the same organization over time. Where LeBron right. at times it felt like was title chasing when he left Cleveland to go he to was Miami. Also in a disastrous organization who didn't want to he build back around him. Someone said Steph ahead of Tim Duncan easily. Man. I I, I, I just don't, don't think agree people with understand that. how good Tim Duncan was for as long as he was. I was a Lakers fan in that Kobe Shaq era. I hated I hated two teams at the time, the Detroit Pistons because of the Wallace brothers, or not brothers, that I thought they were brothers, yeah. <laughs> and also the San Antonio Spurs because of Tim Duncan and Tony Parker. I hated those two teams. The entire Spurs culture was Tim Duncan. Yeah. Like, t- Tim Duncan was what made that team and what it was. And it was carried over from Duncan Robinson. Yeah. Or close yeah coming up in about 10 minutes or so we'll get to some ask us anything sports or otherwise you got a question throw them in on the air comfort service text line 65780 but coming up next the blues might be better than their competition in the west next year by just standing pat we'll explain how that would come to fruition next year on 101 espn 
We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Blues backup goalie Charlie Lindgren joining the show coming up in about 30 minutes. So stay tuned for that. But right now, let's talk a little bit about the offseason, Alex, for the Blues. I was reading over on ESPN.com today, and Greg Wyshynski had a good piece breaking down what this offseason could look like, some of the top free agents, who he would go after if he were in charge of teams. And Alex, the more that I look at these free agent lists, the more I realize I think all of the guys that we are interested in are just a different version of the players that the Blues already have. And honestly, probably more expensive versions of the players that the Blues already have. Now, if you're looking for something that they could add, I like your idea of a guy like Nick Paul or uh, Aston Reese. I think those two players make a lot of sense for this team on below market value deals or something around like what, two, two and a half million dollars, something like that. Not paying a ton of money, adding a little more physicality, players who can play either on the fourth line or play up on that third line if necessary if Jake Neighbors can't be ready to go right away those are the kinds of players that I'm interested in I'm not sure that I'm interested in adding a whole lot of anything else from this year's free agency class well let me ask you this have you guys liked any of the Ferrario fives in the last couple of weeks with the exception of some of the trade candidates I mean I I never love the Ferrario fives but in particular the ones about who the Blues could add in free agency definitely not a big fan you are always trying to be hurtful here well the reason I'm kidding you don't like the Ferrario fives is because that's the options via free agency they're awful every category you can ask for they are not good and some guys make sense, like an Andre Pilat or a Frank Vetrano or the guys that I've mentioned, Nick Paul, Zach Aston Reese. But you're going to probably have to overpay for these guys, especially if Tampa Bay wins a Stanley Cup. You don't think Andre Pilat's going to be overpaid or Nick Paul's going to be overpaid because of Stanley Cup champions? They are. So this is free agency. And I think this is as much as I'd love to see the blues go out there and make some changes and make some upgrades and, you know, bring it back with more talent. You're going to put yourself in a bad position. If you're going to go out there and try and sign any of these guys via free agency. So if I'm the blues and I'm Doug Armstrong, which I'm not man is very smarter than I am. I, I think I look at this team and say, if worst case scenario, we come back with the exact same roster. I still think we're going to be doing the exact same thing that we were doing this past season, if not better, because I do believe, and Chris Gear said this yesterday with us, the Central Division is just going to continue to diminish. And here's what Chris Gear had to say yesterday when he was on with us, the former NHL assistant general manager with the Vancouver Canucks, about the Blues potentially running it back and how that might be not as bad of an idea as it sounds. Edmonton may be can't bring back Evander Kane and, and their goaltending situation is, is uh, up in arms right now. So, you know, and Colorado, the same thing with Nazem Kadri. Can they afford to bring him back? And then they've got uh, Nathan McKinnon up the next year, which they have to guard against. So, you know, I think all of the teams are, are in a position where they might not be as good next year. And, and so running it back, you know, isn't necessarily the worst thing in the world. I think right now, BK, if you look at just the overall standings in the Western Conference, I think going into next season, the Blues are the second best team in the West. 
Like if they were just to to, to run it back, they'd yep. be the second best team, second to Colorado. And I felt that way this year, right? Mm-hmm. Like we went into the playoffs and we felt okay. The Blues are in that conversation with Calgary as the second best team in the West, and it's it, you could argue on either side of it, but I think I would have sided on the on the Blues side. I think all three of us would have. And now that we've seen what the playoffs ended up looking like. I firmly believe that the Blues were the second best team in the West this year behind only Colorado. Colorado's going to have a ton of changes this offseason. They could still be a very good team next year, but I think they take probably a slight step back, and that still means very good, but maybe not excellent. And I think the Blues are already very good. So when you look at the, the teams around them, potentially going from like on a scale of one to 10, maybe you could argue the other teams around them were at like the, the abs a 10. The Blues were at an eight. Maybe Calgary was also at an eight and Edmonton was around a seven, something like that. Well, maybe Edmonton now takes it down to a six and Calgary goes from an eight with the Blues to a seven. And maybe the Colorado Avalanche go from a 10 back down to an eight where the Blues are already at. And that's how you end up looking better relative to the teams around you, despite you not making a ton of upgrades. Alex, I was thinking about Andre Pilat. And, you know, that's that's been my guy. If the Blues are going to go out and make a signing this offseason, I think he makes a ton of sense for them, given the way that he plays. But the more I think about it, the more I think they go about it in a little bit different ways. He's basically Brandon Saad, maybe even as a slightly lesser version of Brandon Saad in terms of the production that you're expecting out of an Andre Pilat. And you're signing him for the same reasons. Both of them have had playoff success. Both of them have a winning pedigree. They've been on winning teams in the past. And so why am I trying to sign an Andre Pilat when you kind of have that guy already on the roster? The only real spot that I do think they should and probably will upgrade is that third line left winger spot. And the more I think about that, like Torpchenko is probably going to battle to potentially have opportunities there, even if he doesn't start there going into the season. I think he starts on the fourth line. I think you're going to have Jake Neighbors battling potentially for that spot. And if you can bring in one of those other guys, like a Nick Paul that you were mentioning on a reasonable deal I think that's probably the best case scenario for this offseason I think it is barring you going out and getting the big fish like if you get the Matthew Kachuk that changes everything we're talking about right now because it requires you to redo what you're doing in the top nine but if you can't do that I think the top nine probably looks pretty much what it does right now but maybe with one addition on a relatively cheap deal and in all reality if you're running it back you've got five guys competing for third line spots Braden Chen Jordan Cairo Ivan Barbashev and then uh, you're going to have Jake Neighbors and Alexi Torpchenko and I know people are going to hate to hear this but Clem Costin's going to get an opportunity to do to fight for that spot and then if you go out there and you are able to sign a player to like what Chris Gear told us yesterday, you're not going out there and signing anybody for over one and a half million dollars for a fourth line role. But if you can go get a Zach Aston Reese for a million and a half dollars for a one year deal, a guy who could potentially score 15 goals if you moved him up, that that's a benefit to the Blues. Like you've got the depth there once again. I think the only clear upgrade you have to do if you're St. Louis with running it back is making sure you're the left side of the defense is upgraded and that's either going to be Nick Letty, maybe a trade for a guy like Jacob Chikrin, or you're going to give Nico Mikkel and Scott Perunovic a chance. Coming up in about 20 minutes or so, we're going to talk to Charlie Lindgren, the Blues goalie who we expect to be back next year at this point in time as their backup on the NHL roster next year. We'll talk to him about that and the AHL run that the Springfield Thunderbirds are on right now. They are getting ready to battle for the Calder Cup trophy and Charlie Lindgren able to join us ahead of that series tonight. We'll talk to Charlie Lindgren coming up at 12:15. But coming up next, 
780 is the Air Comfort Service text line. If you have any questions for us, sports or otherwise, ask us anything is next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. You've got questions. We may have the answers. Maybe text now to 65780. It's PK and Ferrario's questions and answers on 101 ESPN. 7780 is the Air Comfort Service text live for Ask Us Anything. If you could try to cheer up Alex Ferrario, that would be a great time. It's impossible because to do I got so. this guy to my left. <laughs> In about five minutes oh, or good, so. That's not me. Talking no, about Mike too. Schilt, who had some things to say to Rick Hummel yesterday in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. We'll talk about that. He said it's not your job, Rick. Coming up here in about five minutes or so, he would never say that to the commission. Just to you. Let's start with this from the 314. Hey, guys, if you could have a vacation home anywhere in the continental 48 United States, where would it be and why? St. Louis, Missouri, because I love <laughs> STL. Uh, yeah. <laughs> 48 man that takes out Hawaii I was really going there yep I don't uh, I probably would go I think I'd go Georgia you ever been to Savannah Georgia I have not my sister just moved to Atlanta actually two weeks ago my sister lived in Savannah for college for a couple of years and we went down there and hung out for a weekend a couple of times and Katie and I have gone on a trip there the place is beautiful and they got Tybee Island which is the beach right there next to it it's got a lot of history around it I think I would pick state of Georgia, but Savannah, something along like the, the coast would be awesome. The number one uh, place on my bucket list of Mizzou road games to go to in the SEC is Athens mm-hmm. for the same reason, because I've just heard it's an unbelievably beautiful I mean, campus. It's hot as hell there, which sure. is fine. I mean, have you walked outside? Well, very here? true, which I'm used to it by now, but man, I just, I, I always loved the chance to go down there for the weekend. Great food, music, history. So that'd be my spot. I think my spot, that's it. I did enjoy when we went to Savannah last year. My spot would probably be, though, the uh, Smoky Mountains in Tennessee. That's probably one of my favorite trips that I've ever done. Just small little creeks back there. You've got just the woods around you. Beautiful little, I can't remember where we were uh, exactly, but the place that we stayed, uh, Gatlinburg maybe, I think was what it was called. It's a beautiful area, beautiful Mm -hmm. small little town. That's probably where I'd want to go, be in the Smoky Mountain area. Uh, I would go Mission Beach, which is in San Diego. San Diego. It is. Man, you're talking about the weather. You can't beat it. Year round, it is like 80 degrees as the high, 65 degrees as the low. It is absolutely beautiful. There's a reason why it is so damn expensive to live in San Diego. And so I could never afford to actually have a vacation home there. But that would be that would be the spot that I would want to have. Our vacation spot this summer where we always go. Katie's uncles live up there in Michigan, Saugatuck, Michigan. It's another really good spot. The problem is I don't handle cold very well, um, and it is freezing the up winter. there in the wintertime. So I'd have that, to like. That's right off the Great Lakes, mm-hmm. right? Oh. Yeah, it's right past uh, Grand Rapids. It's it's freaking cold. But in the summertime, it's incredible. 65780 is the air comfort service text line from the 314. Hey, guys, I'm getting ready to head up to Boston for the first time for the Cardinals series. Have any of you guys been? And if so, do you have any recommendations? on what I need to do while I'm here. I'm going in October. Only time I was there was game seven and everything was closed because they were sour about the Blues winning the cup. So Weird flag. no I, recommendations here. October, as you guys have heard now, probably a million times for me is the first time that I will go anywhere in the Northeast. So I cannot, unfortunately, give you any recommendations. Never been that far Northeast. Never been to Boston. I had so clam I chowder in Boston, like in, was the, it good? in the common grounds area. 
You good? I didn't get any. I oh. just walked by it. It smelled good. Uh, 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line from the 636. Guys, any plans this weekend with your dads for Father's Day? Yeah, I'm actually in a golf tournament with my dad tomorrow. Uh, thank God it's only 89 degrees and not 109 That's degrees. Say, this is a good weekend to do yeah, it. Yeah, and then uh, and then Sunday we usually just get together for a, a family barbecue. So we're going to be doing that uh, Sunday evening. Did I hear you're, you're testing out the smoker, smoker that yeah. you got? Yeah. Pit boss. I got a pit boss. Nice. So I, we set it up the other day and did like the initial smoke of it to like get all of the new smell off of it and get it ready. So yeah, we're going to do it this weekend. I'm going to try Randy Carricker's carrot cake. Nice. There you go. I'll let you know guys how it's probably going to be bad. I think it'll be great. I don't know. I'm not good at cooking. And no, no plans for me on uh, Father's Day. We were just all together. So uh, you need a break. <laughs> we need a break. Two weeks of we all need a break. <laughs> I think everybody do understands. Do you need the break back, or does your dad in, need the break? My, I think everybody Both. needs a break. <laughs> uh, my dad will be back in town, though, the following weekend. I'll probably go get dinner or something with him then. I am planning to go to Kansas City this weekend to go to a concert out there. It's called Boulevardia. Um, what? Boulevard Brewery? It's a concert put on by them all oh, day tomorrow. I thought tomorrow. that was the band name. No, 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 no. All day tomorrow. Dashboard Confessional. You remember oh, them? I love Dashboard Confessional. They're headlining one night, and then uh, Nathaniel Ratliff in the Night Sweats are headlining oh, tonight. Nathaniel Ratcliffe? I, I had those last Ratliff. night, the Night Sweats. Is that a different person that I'm thinking of? Uh, I believe it's Nathaniel Ratliff, right? That was Ratcliffe. No, that's oh, Daniel Radcliffe. Radcliffe. That's Harry Potter, uh, and he's yeah. watching those right now, <laughs> well, too. Well, he's a good concert no matter what. Yes. So Yeah, yeah. yeah. We're really excited to go to that. So that's to Nathaniel Ratliff and the Night Sweats is tonight. We've got Dashboard Confessional tomorrow, and they've got a bunch of different stuff going on throughout the day as Rocky's well. Rocky jealous. So, yeah, it'll, it'll be a good time. Looking forward to that. And then Sunday, I'm going to brunch with my dad. We'll hang out with him uh, for most of the day on Sunday. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, we're talking to Charlie Lindgren, the Blues goalie down in the AHL right now. Likely their backup goalie next year. We'll ask him about that, what this season has been like for Charlie. We'll do that coming up at 12.15. But next, Mike Schilt had some comments to Rick Hummel yesterday. We'll tell you what they are and whether or not Mike Schilt's going to be a manager sooner rather than later. Again, coming up here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. Coming up in about 10 minutes or so, we're going to catch up with Charlie Lindgren, the Blues backup goalie likely for next season. We're going to talk to him about that and his AHL run with the Springfield Thunderbirds coming up at one o'clock. We're talking to Lawrence Bowers, the former Mizzou basketball player. He's now basically in charge of NIL at the University of Missouri. It's a fascinating thought process for him and what they're trying to accomplish at Mizzou. So we'll get into some of the details of that with Lawrence Bowers at one o'clock but Alex Mike Schilt the former Cardinals manager talked with Rick Hummel yesterday and this was in today's St. Louis Post-Dispatch and I wanted to discuss some of the comments that he had to Hummel and what his future could hold from Rick Hummel quote Mike Schilt after being let go by the Cardinals in October signed on with the Padres to kick the tires after turning down their offseason request to interview him for the job that ultimately went to Bob Melvin. Schilt told Rick Hummel, quote, I'm not sure what the market looks like right now. I feel like I am more than deserving of an opportunity to manage again, though, but I don't know what people are looking for. I've never looked for a managing job before. He added that he does not currently have a uh, agent because he never needed an agent. So it looks like Mike Schilt's ready to get back into the managing realm. Do you guys think somebody's going to hire him? Like if, as we project towards this offseason, 
Is Mike Schilt the kind of manager that you think that teams are probably are, are going to be looking for? Someone's going to hire him. I mean, you got a guy who won manager of the year and was a runner up another season, had successful seasons with St. Louis. I mean, we were all shocked when he was fired. So obviously somebody is going to look into bringing him in. I forgot who we talked to, but they obviously spoke of, you know, it tainting his image a little bit of saying that there were philosophical differences and not backing that up and giving people explanations why. But at the end of the day, there's going to be a major league team out there that might be in tank mode that looks to start competing or might be going from competing, going into tank mode. Somebody's going to give the guy a shot at managing. Once again, it's just a matter of when they feel like the time is right. And according to this quote from Mike Schilt, when he feels like the time is right, because if he turned down San Diego's opportunity, I mean, that felt like it would be a good opportunity for him following the Cardinals, but he said it wasn't. Yeah, I, I think someone will give Mike Schilt another chance. I mean, you don't get to the postseason like Mike Schilt didn't have the success that he did unless you're a, a good manager. Now, look, I agree a lot of managers are pretty much playing on the same uh, field in terms of there's only like four or five that really stand out in Major League Baseball. But Mike Schilt's definitely a guy that deserves another opportunity and probably will get another opportunity to manage. I mean, you look at the two jobs that are technically open now that are being filled by interns are the L.A. Angels and the uh, Philadelphia Phillies. Honestly, sending, having him go to one of those teams that's in kind of a compete mode makes a ton of sense. He has a success or has the background of success being on a, in an organization that wants to win with the St. Louis Cardinals, and also like a team like Philadelphia, where look, I get it, they're not you can't really make them better defensively, but work on some of the defensive miscues that they have, it makes a ton of sense. And then if you want to take another broader scope of things and look back to last year, where all the rumors started flying around here at the end of the year. Baltimore, I think, was close to firing their manager. It sounds like Derek Shelton's time in Pittsburgh is running out, even though that poor guy never had a chance to win yeah. there. But I hope Schilt doesn't take that job. But those are those are the kind of jobs that if you're a team, maybe not Pittsburgh as much, but Baltimore, who we saw in person, took, what, two or three from the Cardinals. You look at them, and look, I get it. They're below 500, but they're playing a very difficult AL East where four of those five teams are in playoff contention. Their pitching has taken a step forward this year and has been pretty good for them. They just don't have the pieces offensively, but they're developing them. That's the kind of spot that my, I could see Mike Schultz also taking where it is. I'm going to come in. Sure, I'm probably going to go through one or two losing seasons, but you look at his track record in the minor leagues and having the developmental side, he makes a ton of sense for a team that's maybe not at the very beginning of a rebuild, but getting ready to hope, hopefully and ideally get towards the end of that rebuild and where they're on the cusp of developing all of their players at the big league level. Do the Cubs make sense? I'm so glad you brought them up. I was about to say I've got two teams. Let me get to them here in just okay. a second. The team that I think would be an ideal fit for Mike Schilt actually is Miami. I think he would be a really interesting fit in Miami. Now, I don't know how well he and Jazz Chisholm would see. I was just going to say, does he, <laughs> does he and Chaz Chisholm make sense? Because I don't think so. I'm not so sure, but defensively, they're pretty darn good, man. And they've got some young talent that they're starting to build around. They also have some guys that have, have the ability to run the bases pretty well, including Jazz Chisholm. So I, I think in terms of his personality and what he's looking for, and their pitching is excellent. Like They have all the starting pitching that you could ask for if you're Mike Schilt. And I think that's good for him. I think he needs to go to a place that has stable rotation, guys that can get deeper into games. It makes the rest of it. I, Mike Schultz is a really good manager, and I think he does a very good job of a lot of different things. I don't think that his bullpen management is necessarily like at the top of the list of things that I would say, especially creativity-wise, what I would say, that's what people are hiring him for. Defense, cleaning everything up, the base running, 
making sure that everything is is good to go inside of the clubhouse. Those are the things that he's really good at. So having a good starting rotation, I think, would be important for him. Miami is the place that I would like to see him go for him to have success. The place that's most interesting, though, is what you brought up, Alex. I don't know what the Cubs' plans are because there was a piece today over on The Athletic. The Cubs have now lost 10 straight games. And they talked with their general manager, and he said he's basically feeling the heat already, right? Like, they, they knew this was going to be a rough season. I'm not sure they expected, at least they're putting on the public face, that they didn't expect it to be this bad this quickly. Let him go three cornerstone guys. Yeah, who could have seen it coming, right? <laughs> Wilson Contreras probably isn't going to be back. I would assume they keep David Ross for at least another year because this is not his fault. Like, nobody was going to win with this roster. But if Mike Schilt's willing to wait another year, the most interesting possibility would be him getting fi- getting hired by the Cubs. Talk about a potential reigniting of the rivalry. Like Mike Schilt going up 19 times a year against this team and this front office that decided to let him go after all the success that he had here in St. Louis. Oh, buddy, that would ignite some flames. That, that would be super interesting. I'm just I'm thinking of those teams in the rebuild process in Miami's interesting. I don't think that would be a fit because of players like Jazz Chisholm. And, and I mean, I just look at Tony Larusa and with the White Sox. Like I know Schilt can be new school, but he's just screams more old school. And you got a guy who's playing second base with purple hair. I don't know how that's going to go over with Mike Schilt. Baltimore makes sense, T-Bone, like you mentioned. But I, I, I'm looking more in the NL Central. Like, that's where I go to, and I don't think Pittsburgh's going to be firing the guy that they just hired, especially because there's no competition there anytime soon. Cincinnati's already got their guy. Yeah, David Bell. And you go to Chicago. Yeah, Craig like, Council ain't going anywhere. And David, like... Unless Dave, he goes to the Mets. That's the only option. I don't that see I think that. Would. I mean, you seem like you're in a pretty good position if you're Craig Council where I you agree. played for. Like, David Ross, I felt like David Ross was hired to try and keep those... That window open and those those main core pieces intact after they let Joe Madden go. And it's not his fault, but it didn't work. And then Rizzo leaves, Bryant leaves, Baez leaves. You lose that core. You're going to start shifting into a new group of people. That's why I feel like you go to Mike Schill. Other than that, I mean, maybe a team like Oakland, if they're going to be transitioning to a, a new city yeah, in Vegas. Although Mike Schilt doesn't scream Las Vegas to me either. Me either, but yeah, I as I, say, I don't know. Vegas screams him. I, I, the Cubs one to me is interesting because it does have the potential to reignite a rivalry. Seeing him those nineteen times going up against the Cardinals, like Dusty and but, TLR, yeah, Ollie I, and Schilte. I just don't. That'd be fun. I don't see the Cubs as being a good fit for Mike Schilt. They're, they play as a cheap organization, so I I don't see him being able to field a team quickly enough to go out and win with them, and he's going to be dealing with a young team. I think the one that makes all the sense in the world, I don't think they're going to move on. They won't move on from their manager probably, but I think it is Baltimore. I think Baltimore is the one that screams Mike Schilt. Come in as they are getting ready to yep. potentially. Uh, look, talk about cheap. They're st- I know cheap, but they're not in a big city. The, the Cubs are in, what, the third largest city yep. in, in America, and they operate like the Baltimore Orioles. So, But I, I look at Baltimore, and I say that's probably the one because they're, they're not – I think they're like two or three years from escaping the rebuild, but you're seeing some of their pieces come up and there's making the slow steps of improvement. And he's a guy that would go in there and probably be able to fix defensive miscues, have be able to have the developmental process of working with some of those young guys, like their catcher, uh, is it Rutchinson? Is that his name? I think who was like the number one overall prospect in all of baseball, but because they're making those improvements, I don't see them moving on from their manager. I don't know if there truly is a fit out there. LA angels make a little bit of sense, but I th- I'm not quite, 
quite sure what they're going to do. I think they're going to go more of the new modern manager than they are going to go back towards old school after moving on from Joe Madden. Last thing on this before we get to Charlie Lindgren on the other side. Looking back, do we all agree that the Cardinals ended up making the right move even though it was strange at the time? Yeah. I think so. Moving on from Mike Schiltz to go in favor of Ali Marmel. And I know we've only seen like two and a half months of it, but it just it, it, it screams that it's working in the right match with Ali Marmol on this team. So, yeah, I think they made the right decision. I agree because I don't know if they have this roster construction if they have Mike Schiltz in the belt. And I hate to say that, but I, I think it's true. I don't know if you see Albert Pujols back here if they have Mike Schultz uh, on the roster. I think you'd see him. I think he'd be playing more. Yeah, though. I think he'd be uh, playing first base <laughs> I don't a lot. know that you see Juan Yepes. Yeah, Maybe we Yepes. Donovan, another guy. I'm not sure if you see him. I still think you see Paul DeYoung up here if you see if uh, Mike, Mike Schultz here, here Albert Pujols is probably making another reu- reunion in left field. Yeah, it, he, well. He'd be playing a lot, that's for sure. I, I think it's possible that this ended up being the best-case scenario for both parties. I think it's possible that for Mike Schilt going elsewhere – he might end up being able to enjoy success there and having potentially a little more power there than what he would have had here in St. Louis. And for the Cardinals, I think it, I I believe that they ended up having a manager that fits better with their current roster and fits better with what their identity is going to be as they progress forward. So I think it's possible this ended up working out well for both parties, even though at the time it felt strange for both parties, uh, given the way that it all went down. In about 15 minutes, we're talking about Yvonne Herrera. Speaking of the future, is he the Cardinals' future catcher the way that they've always been selling it, or is it still possible for Andrew Kisner to regain that job? We'll talk about that coming up at 1230. Charlie Lindgren, the Blues goalie, down in Springfield right now. They're on their way to potentially winning the Calder Cup. Charlie Lindgren joins us next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. BK and Ferrario alongside Tanner Hendrickson and Brandon Kylie. I'm Alex Ferrario. Fellas, say it with me. Charlie, Charlie, Charlie. We are headed to the Brown and Crouppen celebrity line now to welcome in the goaltender for the Springfield Thunderbirds, who has been a part of his team's run now in the Calder Cup finals going up against the Chicago Wolves. And of course, the undefeated Charlie Lindgren, a.k.a. Chucky Sideburns, is with us today on BK and Ferrario. Charlie, how are you today, sir? Doing awesome. Uh... Yeah, still playing hockey, so you can't beat that. So everything's going great. Still playing hockey, and I mean, just big picture, and we're going to get deeper into hockey, but just big picture for you, man. You sign with the St. Louis Blues in the offseason. You go into training camp, and then out of training camp, you find out you're going to go to Springfield. You have your time with St. Louis, and now you guys are going to the Calder Cup Final. What has this season been like for you? It's been such a blessing, honestly. It's been uh I really couldn't have asked for a better year. Um, you know, the way we're treating Springfield, um, the way things went in St. Louis, um, how much I love the city of St. Louis and the fans there, and uh, the same being said for Springfield. It's been, uh, from start to finish, it's been a heck of a year. Um, and, you know, we've had, uh, we've, we've found success too, and that's what, uh, that's what every hockey player wants is a team that um, can go far in the playoffs, and um, we, we've sure have been doing that. 
Charlie, you look to the off season here in St. Louis, and we've talked a bit about this, but I'm just curious where your head, your mental space is right now as you kind of think about, okay, obviously you have unfinished business that lies ahead, but with Ville Husso reaching unrestricted free agency, do you feel like you might have found a little bit of a home here in St. Louis potentially, not just for the here and now, but potentially longer term? Well, I mean, yeah, like I just said, I I, uh, I have nothing but really good things to say about um, St. Louis as an organization and St. Louis as a city and uh, me being a guy from the Midwest, uh, you know, St. Louis being eight hours away from, uh, you know, where, where I'm from, uh, it, it certainly felt like home. And so, you know, it's been, uh, like I said, I, I've, I've really enjoyed everything about this year, um, you know, my time in St. Louis and Springfield and you know, obviously my focus now is, is the, the Calder Cup finals because we're less than a month away. And then that's, uh, you know, I think things will take care of itself when, when it comes to that. Charlie Lindgren is our guest here on 101 ESPN. Uh, Charlie, here in St. Louis, we look back at that time in December when you were up and the Blues were going through all of those different COVID issues and they had injuries at the time as well. And we remember it fondly now with the ability to be able to look back on it as a time when the Blues were able to overcome some just crazy adversity. When you were up with the NHL club this year, uh, how do you remember that time, that, that two to three week stretch there? I mean, I look back and it's that was probably my favorite month of hockey I've ever uh, I've ever played. Um, you know, I think it starts really with the dressing room. I think um, you know I tell everyone that that dressing room in St. Louis is special with that the leadership group they have there, um, the young pieces they have. Um, it's just a, a, a great great group with um, some really unbelievable chemistry and um, you know the fan support obviously was unbelievable. Um, the whole Chucky Sideburn feel, you know, that took on kind of a life of its own. And, you know, you even see, uh, you know, in Springfield here, people wearing the shirts and all that stuff. It's, you know, it was just a really, really cool experience. And, um, and, and like I said, I mean, I'll look back on this year as being one of my favorite, uh, definitely one of my favorite years of my life. And, um, that, that month in St. Louis was, uh, was, yeah, probably my favorite month of all time. Charlie, I love the fact that they're wearing the T-shirts, but I got to be honest with you, man. That stretch that you went through, I was fully expecting Blues fans to just start growing out their sideburns and coming to Enterprise Center with them. Yeah, yeah, me too. I mean, it, it is funny though. It's funny how things like that can kind of take off, and um, yeah, it certainly certainly has. And you know, my look, you know, I end up getting a haircut a couple months later, so the hair isn't as long as it was, but. Uh, no, I still got the sideburns going. I still got the mustache. So I, I still kind of got the look going on. So, um, so yeah, it's been good. That's awesome. Well, Charlie, I'm curious. You mentioned the locker room in St. Louis. And, and I always go back when people talk about Charlie Lindgren here in St. Louis. And I go back inside a quote from Robert Bortuzzo where he talked about just the impact that you provided, not even on the ice, but it was off the ice. He said it was just an energy, a spark, every time you walked into the locker room with Charlie Lindgren. Did you feel like you meshed well into that locker room? And do you pride yourself on providing that spark? No, I think a hundred percent. I felt extremely comfortable from day one walking into that locker room. And I think, um, you know, anyone can say the same thing. And that's just, again, that's a testament to the guys in the room. I mean, it's a, a very welcoming group. Um, and just, uh, you know, and I knew Justin Falk a little bit going into it. Um, but that was, that was about it. Um, I didn't, I didn't know anyone else. And, um, to, to be so comfortable, so comfortable to feel so comfortable, um, with a group of guys like that, it, it speaks volumes. And, um, 
you know, I think that's a big reason why St. Louis has found uh, so much success just because I know that group, uh, they really get along well. They, you know, it's a true brotherhood and um, yeah, I, I truly loved it. We're talking to Charlie Lindgren, Blues goalie here on 101 ESPN. Uh, Charlie, I did want to make sure that we asked you when you when you look back to that time in St. Louis, were there any guys in particular that kind of took you under their wing for that that stretch of time, whether it be, hey, look, come on out with us. We're going to grab some dinner at, at this place tonight or come over to my place. We'll play some cards. Who were some of the guys that kind of took you under their wings? Well, and I, uh, O'Reilly took um, all of us young guys out uh uh, one night in Dallas, and you know, I think we all know how how great of a captain he is. He's probably the best captain I've ever uh, I've ever seen. Um, just a terrific guy. Um, you know, obviously Justin Falk. You know, he he definitely took me under his wing. Uh, but also like guys like Vladdy Tarasenko. I mean, um, that guy uh, just unbelievable. The kind of guy he is. He was so good to me. Um, you know, I always had a smile on his face. Um, but honestly, I could go. Uh, I could go down the line. Uh, Bortuzzo, obviously, an awesome guy. Um, you know, Nick Letty, talking to a guy like Nick Letty, who I knew a little bit when he got traded to St. Louis, um, I know he was extremely impressed and, and pretty much says the same things I do, just just about how fun that locker room is to be around and um, and how great of guys there are. So, so yeah, I think, uh, you know, I can really go down the whole roster and be like, that guy was good to me, that guy was good to me. I mean, honestly, that's just how it is, and that's um, and, and that's an amazing feeling. Charlie, do I have this right that you got married within the last year as well? You do, yeah. So I got engaged in July, and then my wife and I we just decided let's uh, you know let's get her done before the season, and so <laughs> we we went up to northern Minnesota, and uh, that's called Black Sand Beach. Um, it's just right north of, of Duluth on Lake Superior, and just uh, we got it done up there. So it was. Um, you know, kind of an interesting way to do it, but I definitely wouldn't have done it any other way. And we'll have a little, uh, you know, we'll have a little celebration with her family and friends this summer. So, were you? Was she fully expecting the whirlwind of a season that you guys <laughs> <Yeah>. just went through? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't know if she was expecting that. And it's, you know, it's funny looking back on, you know, um, the way the previous year had been. Uh, I had only played three games, and it was uh, uh, just a really, really difficult year. And I think she knew that, and. Um, and to kind of turn it around and have the year like I, I've had this year, um, you know, obviously she couldn't be more excited. My family couldn't be more excited, and, um, you know, I couldn't be more excited. So um, it's been one hell of a year, and I'm uh, super, super, um, I feel super lucky. Bring us inside. What, what was the plan? How would you go about the proposal, and <laughs> how would she react? <laughs> well, I mean, I think just like any other guy, I mean, it's a it's a nerve-wracking uh, part of life. And, you know, we had been together for over three years, and, you know, she was starting to send the, the daily engagement ring photos every day <laughs> on my Instagram. It's like, all right, I'm getting tired of this. But, um, yeah, it was uh, – we, we have a cabin up in northern Wisconsin, so we, we got up there. Um, we took off to a place called Tim's Hill. It's the highest point in Wisconsin. And uh, – we uh we we got her done up there so it was kind of funny when i uh, when i pulled the ring out of my pocket i you know we were kind of looking around and 
I was like, hey, I got something for you. So that's, <laughs> that's the words that came out of my mouth. So, you know, I could have probably been a little bit more romantic with it, but it's a funny story to tell. Oh, uh, that's all right, Charlie. My wife still reminds me to this day when I tried to propose to her, I legitimately choked while I was <laughs> while I was getting the words out. So uh, That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. hey, Charlie, you, you talked about this season and the past couple of seasons, and, and I'm just curious what this meant for you. And, and, you know, we've talked about your NHL side of things, but on the AHL side of things, I mean, you spent your entire career – with the Montreal Canadiens organization, you played for their big team, and then you played for Laval in the American Hockey League, and then you just go on and you are the one who posts the shutout against Laval to advance to the Calder Cup final. Man, what does that mean for you? Oh, that that win felt um, so good. You guys have no idea. I mean, it. Uh, there was so much emotion that went into it. I kind of downplayed it going into the series, but... Uh, you know, uh, it it just meant a whole lot just because obviously uh, my time up in Montreal, it was, uh, you know, obviously there were some great moments, but also there were some dis- disappointing moments as well. So, um, you know, and they got a revamped uh, management team now and, and new coaching staff in Laval, but uh, but still to take it to those guys and, and get her done in a game seven, man, that felt, uh, that sure felt incredible. Charlie, with uh, Father's Day coming up this weekend, I I wanted to ask you about your dad and his influence that he's had on you. I I was reading a story over at The Athletic. I kind of broke down your background and how you got into the goalie side of things. Can For our listeners who maybe don't know that backstory about your relationship with your father and then how you got into becoming a goalie, what kind of an influence did your dad have on you whenever you were younger? Yeah, I'll just tell you right now, I wouldn't be where I am without my dad. He's definitely been my number one influence. There's no question about it. He was my first goalie coach. He, you know, he played goalie growing up all the way till uh, he played at the University of Michigan for a year. Um, but yeah, he's he's truly been everything for me. Um, you know, he's he's my first call after hockey games. Still, he catches every game and. You know, he just he, he loves watching his sons play, and I think uh, you know he's the kindest, uh, most loving dad, and I couldn't ask for a better relationship with him. I love that, Charlie. But I'm just curious because you play goal. Your younger brother, if I'm not mistaken, Andrew plays goal. So what Correct. happened with your middle brother Ryan? Did he just say, <laughs> "No, nah, the hell with it. I'm going to do something else." The black sheep well, of Ryan, the family. Ryan was, Ryan was the youngest, so oh, okay. me and Andrew. Were, yeah, so we were. Uh, yeah, I was the first one to, to to pick to get in the goal, obviously just because of my dad. And then, um, yeah, Andrew, he followed suit. And then Ryan said, the heck with that. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> he, you know, he wanted, he wanted nothing to do with it. So, you know, obviously it worked out really well for him. And he's had himself uh, one heck of a year, too. And um, he loves it out in New York. He's had, he has a great time there. So, um but yeah, it's it's funny. He's he said no, I'm not doing that. So he's defenseman's where he is. How fun was that for your family in this time of stretch where they were able to watch your brother Ryan make his way all the way to the Eastern Conference Final with New York, and then for you watching this stretch all the way to the Calder Cup Final? It's been unbelievable for him, and I think um, you know, speaking for both my parents and uh, my family, I know that they just they couldn't be more proud. So to see us have success. Um, you know, that, that truly is what makes them happy. And so, you know, they, uh, yeah, I think they've had probably a lot of sleepless nights watching these playoff games. I know it's, uh, you know, it's pretty intense for them, but uh, they wouldn't have it any other way, and they love it. Final question that I've got for you, Charlie, is have your parents ever had to watch you against your brother? And certainly at, at the NHL <laughs> level, has that ever happened? Because there's, there's a very real chance that, that might happen next year. 
Yeah, so I think um, so. My one year in Montreal, I, I backed up and Carey played against my brother Ryan um, and the Rangers. But my dad was in the stands and and my wife, and so that was uh, that was really special. That was our first time um, being on the same ice together in the NHL level. And then um, I played Ryan when I was with Laval um, in Hartford um, and in Laval. So I'm actually I'm one zero one one against Ryan. So I'll take that. Um, <laughs> But it's funny, the game in Hartford, we were up one nothing with about 50 seconds left, and they, they tied it up. And then they won with a couple minutes left in overtime. And I'll tell you, I, I don't think I've ever been so mad after a hockey game. And, um, you know, it was one of those things where I was coming out of the locker room, and I went right on the bus, and my brother texted me. He's like, Mom's here. Like, you got to freaking man up and come talk to us. Like, you know, I was just so pissed off. But, um but yeah, so it's you know when whenever you're playing a sibling, it's you know those stakes are raised. Oh yeah, we've heard the stories from Big Wall Keith Kachuk here in St. Louis when Brady and Matthew go at it. I guess the good news is that one of you's in goal, one's in defense. So if anybody tries to do what Brady and Matthew do on the ice, yeah. somebody's getting a penalty. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> well, Charlie, man, we appreciate you being on with us today, man. I know you got a, a whirlwind of stuff to do before you get on this plane and uh, head off to Chicago to get set to take on the Chicago Wolves with the Springfield Thunderbirds team. But just know everyone in St. Louis, man, they're rooting, they're locked in on the Springfield Thunderbirds season. So good luck in this round. We hope we bring that Calder Cup trophy uh, back to Springfield in St. Louis. And hopefully we're going to be talking to you in St. Louis camp for the upcoming season as the backup goaltender. Me too, guys. Awesome talking to you, and thanks for reaching out. I may have, uh, I may have like sold myself, like telling him that I want him to be back as the backup goaltender. No, I think that's fair. I think he, he knows it. He gets it though, right? Like yeah. people want him back here in the cyber. I'm a little disappointed. He said that he cut his hair though. Like the, uh, the, he'll have it back come back. next year. Come back. The oh, sideburns yeah, yeah. are still intact though, according to him. Yeah, and the mustache. So the, the important parts oh, yeah. are still there. In, in all honesty, talking to him. And I know I, I talked about Joel Hofer playing like Ben Bishop in the minors, and I'm not saying that he's going to be this player, but in all reality, talking him gives me Carter Hutton vibes. And then hearing how the players loved him in the locker room and how much he enjoyed St. Louis, like all of this just tells me it's a guy that has played over 100 games in the American Hockey League, never got a shot at the National Hockey League, proved his proved his talent in the minors this year for St. Louis, and like the tea leaves, everything is written on the wall right now for Lindgren and the St. Louis Blues in terms of a relationship moving forward. Carter Hutton in his two years, I want you guys to tell me if you would sign up for this, if this is what over the next two seasons you got out of Charlie Lindgren. I know what this is. Carter Hutton in his two years here in St. Louis started 47 games. He was 30, 15, and 5 overall in the games in which he appeared. He had a 923 save percentage and allowed 2.2 goals per game. Would you sign up for that right now if I told you you could get that over the next two years from Charlie Lindgren? Absolutely, I'd sign up for that. I mean, he took the job from Jake Allen for a stretch of, of hockey there for how good he was playing. I think maybe not like that. That save percentage is crazy. He was and absurd. He he literally led the league in save percentage and goals allowed on average so in 2018. Billy Huso this year for a good period of time was that guy. Yeah, yeah, we got to bring him back. No. Man. Five, number, $5 million. <laughs> the number of starts that he got, though, where he was at 21 starts one year, 26 the next, and played in 62 total games, I think that's what you're going to need out of whoever the backup goalie is, whether it's Lindgren or somebody else next year, and I think it's going to be Lindgren. I think that's what you're going to need out of him. Yeah. And to be able to win maybe over half of those games, like if you start 25, let's say, if you can go like 14 and 11, something approaching that, that's probably what you're going to need out of your backup. I just, I, I've seen people when we've talked about go backup goaltenders, 
people say like, oh, go get a Braden Holtby or see if Marc-Andre Fleury would sign for cheap. Why would you want a guy who has had past success? At least for me, I don't want a guy who's had past success and is looking to find that success again. Although Fleury's in a different category of his own. That I would take. But like Braden Holtby, I don't want that. Whereas I'd rather get a 28-year-old who has just won a Calder Cup if they do go on to win it in the AHL and has had success in the National Hockey League on a very bad Montreal Canadiens team. Why wouldn't you want to give that guy a shot who's hungrier probably than a veteran who has already had success for me i would just have whatever the money is like holby's just gonna be more expensive than what you're gonna be able to sign maybe charlie not. lundgren for maybe not i, I mean Holtby, I mean, charlie's gonna be a veteran minimum Holtby, Holtby might be a veteran minimum too he just signed a big contract with dallas and they didn't even play him yeah, he played 22 games this year and 2.7 goals against on average He'll, somebody will sign him for a few million bucks couple two three um i just would rather have that money allocated elsewhere if i've got the av- availability to do so and i think I think you could do a heck of a lot worse than Charlie Lindgren as your backup goalie this year. So if you missed any of that conversation, check it out. The podcast page, 101ESPN.com, the free 101 ESPN app. It's all presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers. Coming up next, Avon Herrera is about to have a significant opportunity ahead of him. What does it mean for him? What does it mean for the Cardinals? Talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. future hold for Yvonne Herrera here in St. Louis with Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. Lawrence Bowers joining the show coming up in about 15 minutes. He is in charge of the NIL at the University of Missouri. Got a lot of questions for him on what exactly that means, what the job entails, and what it means for the Tigers when it comes to their recruiting. We'll talk about that with Lawrence Bowers in 15 minutes. But Yvonne Herrera is making his way up to the big leagues right now. He's going to join the team in Boston because Yadier Molina is heading on the IL, according to Katie Wu. It is likely to be multiple weeks of Yadier Molina on the injured list with his uh, nagging knee injury that he's been dealing with really all season long. Alex, if Avon Herrera comes up and is hitting the way that he did in AAA, seems to be handling the pitching staff well, is the defender that everybody has told us that he's been so far in his minor league career, is there a way for him to unseat Andrew Kisner as the backup catcher this year and also to expect his himself to go into next year as the Cardinals starting catcher in 2023. I think so. And frankly, I think that's been the plan all along. I don't know if that's ever changed from John Mozalak's mind of Yvonne Herrera is the next starting catcher for the Cardinals and Andrew Kisner is a placeholder for that, or he's just the backup for us to get to that point. But I think for the rest of this season, I mean, Andrew Kisner had a stretch of a couple of weeks where he was offensively successful, both both catchers defensively are good. Ivana Herrera might be great from what they're telling us with that. Both catchers have handled pitching staffs very well in the minors and the major league level. At least Kisner's done it very well. Herrera hasn't gotten that opportunity. For me, it all comes down to offense. That's how you unseat Andrew Kisner if you're Ivana Herrera. If you come up and you hit the way that you were hitting in Memphis, explain to me how you can rationalize sending that player back down I mean that's like Nolan Gorman when he came up and he was hitting rationalize to me how you would send that player back down to the minors or a Juan Yepes Juan Yepes might be a better example because he's done it at the minors for a while now so I think if Herrera comes up and if they split time 50 50 right down the line 
if Herrera has better offensive numbers and looks more comfortable at the plate and defense is the same, handling the pitching staff is the same, I don't know how you can explain to me and me understand that Kisner deserves to stay up while Herrera goes back down to the minors. See, I think the way for Herrera to stay up is he's going to just have to completely outperform Kisner. It can't be close. And if that's the case, then I think they will go with that opportunity where Herrera is the guy that they stick with at the backup spot. But to me, this is the part one. I mentioned this earlier. This is part one of a two-part battle for who's going to be the starting catcher for next season. I, I Whoever does better in this little stretch here is going to have the edge going into spring training in 2023. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that Herrera could be going down to Memphis and outperform Kisner and then Kisner has the edge. No, if, if Herrera performs better than Kisner but still gets sent down because they want him to get everyday reps and say five of six games he's starting in Memphis compared to probably three of six here in St. Louis with Yachty, then Herrera still could have the edge going into spring training next year. It just depends on how he looks at the plate. I think it's going to be hard for him to outseat Kisner this year just because you still want him to develop down in the minor leagues and continue to work and get pretty much close to those everyday uh, at-bats where he's probably going five days out of the six in which they're playing. When even here with uh, Yachty, when he's healthy and back from the IL, I still expect at best Herrera could potentially be getting three of six, maybe four of seven, but the Cardinals could rationalize that and say, okay, we'll have Kisner play that role and we'll send Avon Herrera back down to the Myers to continue work on things because I don't even think he has 200 plate appearances in triple at the AAA level. So yeah, He's at 130. Yeah, so he's not even at 150. 150 is usually that benchmark that teams look at for uh, plate appearances for a guy in a minor league system, so they could send him down and continue to have him work on stuff down there at the AAA level. But that's only like five more games for Herrera. And if the guy comes up and performs well at the majors, like for me, Andrew Kisner has not performed offensively at the major league level. And Paul DeYoung was the same way. Now, Paul DeYoung had about two years of not performing and Kisner. This is real. The first opportunity we've seen him with the extended play. But even the short span that we got last year from Kisner, BK, uh, we saw for maybe a couple of weeks where it was like, oh, damn, there, there, there's the offense. And then it disappeared. And if Herrera comes up and performs, why not give him a little bit of a stretch like he just gave Kisner? Yeah, in most years, I would have said Yvonne Herrera is going to go back down because they want him to be their starting catcher in 2023. And there's just not opportunities in the big leagues when Yadier Molina is starting to be a guy that gets out there every day. This year, it's different. This year, if you're the backup, quote-unquote, catcher to Yadier Molina, you might be starting three out of every five days when it comes to the rotation. It's possible. So I I tend to think that you're right, Alex. If Yvonne Herrera comes up, and he's the guy that is outperforming Andrew Kisner, I don't think it should surprise anybody, including all three of us, if Kisner's the one that's sent down to AAA to work on things, right? They've done this with now Tyler O'Neill went out on a rehab assignment. I understand it was because of injury, but I don't think it was out of the realm of possibility. That could have happened anyways with him being sent down to AAA to work on things offensively if he didn't get that swing going. You did it with Carlson twice. You did it with Carlson two years ago now. You did it this year with Paul DeYoung. They've done this before where they send guys down while they are kind of at the end of the quote-unquote young period of their careers. And Kisner could be the next guy to do that. And if Avon Herrera takes advantage of his opportunity... I think that Ollie Marmol has proven at this point that he's willing to play the guys that are performing at the higher level. So I, I'm really, I'm really curious to see what Yvonne Herrera looks like. Now, all of this becomes a moot point if he comes up and he hits like 220, doesn't have a whole lot of power. The strike zone, the plate discipline isn't what it was in AAA because the pitchers have better command. Then you send him back down and you allow him to continue to work. But if he doesn't look overwhelmed, if he hits the same way that he has down in the minor leagues where he's batting 290 right now with a 390 on base percentage, 
yeah, I think that guy stays up because that would be the first time that you've had a catcher at the big league level that has been an above average offensive performer since Yadier Molina in 2018. It's been five years since the Cardinals have really had an above average offensive catcher. Von Herrera has that potential, and he's also, based on all reports, a really good defender. So I, I am very excited to see what he can do. And I hope he gets that opportunity to potentially win the job. By the way, on your point about him being the guy that they've always believed in to be the successor to Yadier Molina, I just looked up this quote. I wanted to make sure that I quoted him correctly. John Mosellock last year, this was on August 2nd of 2021. He told Carriker and Smallman, quote, when you look at our minor league system and someone like Yvonne Herrera, he's probably the long-term future at catcher of this organization. That was about 10 months ago now. Now we're finally going to be able to see his first extended run in the big leagues, and I can't wait to see what it looks like. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. In 10 minutes, we're talking to Lawrence Bowers of the University of Missouri, former Mizzou basketball player, now in charge of their NIL deals. What does that mean? What is it going to do for the football and basketball program? You probably saw the news yesterday that there was a new law put into effect. We're going to try to understand it, get a better understanding of it with Lawrence Bowers at 1 o'clock. The junk drawer, though, coming up next. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's open it up. The junk drawer with BK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Together Credit Union. Pay yourself with every purchase. Open and achieve it. Checking account today. in five minutes right now let's dive into the junk drawer tanner what do you have for us today all right guys i saw an article the other day and it was talking about a group of friends i believe there was five of them if i'm not mistaken and you know some friend groups they have like their fantasy football that they do all the time uh this group of friends you know what they do every year they take the same photo and they've been doing it for 40 years now could you guys do that say that again so it's a group of friends there's five guys and they've been taking the same photo, redoing the same photo every year for 40 years now. I feel like I basically do that with Kara's family. Oh, do you? <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, every I think holiday been... we have a specific place uh-huh. that we all go to. But this to is take with the what guys. is essentially a family yeah, photo. I, think I, I guess it's my, technically my family. I've been too. taking pictures with my wife since we were 16 years old. So, yeah, <laughs> the they same can do way, that the same place. Her. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I guess this isn't more of a and thing. In all reality, like how not many out there? Are, okay, do, I get it. Do you still have guys that you were friends with in I don't know how long ago? Like going back to grade school, do you still have guys that you're friends with? So I've moved around that, a lot in grade school, so not, not many, but like from middle school, yeah. You keep so, up with some, some of my best friends are from yeah. guys that I met, whether it was like middle school or they're into high school. Most of my best men were guys. Or, yeah. Yeah. Men were guys yeah. See, most of my best men were from yes. Lindenwood. <laughs> And then I have one guy who is my best man who's been my really close friend since fifth grade. And we stay in touch. Yeah. Like He still lives in the area. So, like, that's a pretty long time. I, we yeah, don't I take do pictures that. together. I don't really take pictures. Tanner's learning something more about years. himself than he is about us right yeah. now. <laughs> you just don't have a lot of friends, T-Bone? No, no. I got plenty of friends from back We can home. start taking pictures together, but we won't, might not be together yeah, 40 years Yeah, let's take a picture in front of this every year well, as yeah. long as we're together. Well, they got to let us back in here every year. Until <laughs> yeah. BK gets a hold well, of they us. they got to let us back in every year, whether we're here or not, to uh, get this photo done. 
Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, the Brewers are going through their version of what the Cardinals went through last June, and boy, oh boy, is it going poorly for them. We'll talk about that coming up at 115. Lawrence Bowers, former Mizzou basketball player, now in charge of NIL at the University of Missouri, joins us next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. Very happy to go out to the Brown and Crouppen celebrity line to be joined by one of my favorite Mizzou basketball players from my time at Mizzou watching the team, Lawrence Bowers. He's now the executive director for advancing Missouri athletes. And if you're not familiar with their work, they just had a big day yesterday on the NIL front. Excited to talk to Lawrence Bowers about what that all means for Mizzou. Lawrence, we appreciate the time as always, man. How you doing today? I'm good, man. First off, let me say I'm I'm very honored to know that I'm one of your favorite players. Um, Zeus had a lot of really, really good players throughout the years. So uh, thanks for that. Um, other than that, man, I'm doing great. Uh, like you said, yesterday was a really big day for our company. And it was a big day, you know, um, for the student athletes who will be affected and, and the beneficiaries of it all. So, Lawrence, take us through this. For our audience that's not familiar with what happened yesterday, people know probably they saw the news. There was a law that was passed that changed the way that you guys are able to go about the NIL. But what exactly did it do for you? What changed yesterday for your company and for the University of Missouri in in the NIL front? Well, I think the biggest thing, uh, you know, the thing that I look most forward to is just, you know, come August 28th, having the ability to be very connected and aligned with the coaches of uh, both uh, respective programs that we're rep- that we're trying to uh, to benefit. So I think uh, in regards to that, I think, you know, having that open line of communication and, and, and the decision making um, starting August 28th, I think that'll really help us gauge, you know, how we want to go about, you know, um, present nil opportunities to certain players as far as the public uh the public deal uh yesterday was huge because uh governor parsons signed the legislation uh legislative law which um now you know we've we've tried to be more secrete discreet with um with our, our handlings of the nil and who we're going after for don uh for contributions but now with him signing that law into place we can now open it up to everybody and and we just hope that everybody sees the importance of it and help us get the Tigers back where they should be. So if I understand this correctly, I can basically, like, if I'm a Mizzou fan and I, I say, you know what, I, I want to do my part. I want to make sure that Mizzou's keeping up with the other teams that they're going up against recruiting-wise where this NIL is starting to become more and more of a factor. I can go to the website. It's advancingmo.com for anybody that wants to go over there. I can start contributing money towards this fund, and then that helps you guys with landing these NIL deals. Absolutely, absolutely. So collective, collective, and name speaks for itself. It's going to take a collective effort from everybody who loves uh, the Missouri Tigers. And from those uh, contributions, uh, we'll be able to employ, you know, and I say employ, employ those athletes to do uh, multiple different charitable works and do all all different types of services to benefit, you know, uh, nonprofits and benefit kids and, you know, do appearances and all that good stuff. Uh, to show that we care. I think that's the biggest thing with NIL. A lot of people, you know, they're stuck in their ways uh, because they consider it as amateurism. But all in all, you know, if you talk to me about it, if you talk to our COO, who is Bud Sasser, about it, 
you know, we understand how this can be so impactful for kids because it would have been very impactful for us back in the day. So, you know, we encourage everybody to uh, to contribute to AMA. And, and also, you know, there's, there, <clears throat> there's been the question about, you know, TSF or AMA. I think it's a, it's a both type of thing. You know, you do what you can, but, you know, all of the money that is coming into AMA is going 100% to the players. And uh, we just hope that everybody sees the necessity and understand the importance of NIL and how it has changed the landscape of college athletics. Lawrence, the one thing for me when thinking about this is looking at, you know, the history of the Missouri Tigers, whether it's on the football side or the basketball side. And look, being in the SEC is never easy when it comes to recruitment for how many big schools and all of the money that's involved with those big schools. But you still look at Eli Drinkwitz and the success that he's had with the recruiting and now Dennis Gates this first full season. How much of a difference does this make now when it comes to recruitment in the SEC for these guys? Well, you know, like you said, I'm going to allude back to what you just said. The SEC is number one in football and top three in basketball conferences in the whole country. So in regards to recruiting, it's already tough. You know, uh, when you throw the NIL in there, it does kind of level the playing the playing field, um, you know, a little bit. However, the schools that are the best in the NIL space will still be at the top of the class every single year. So I know for me personally and for my CEO, Greg Steinhoff, and all of the, the men and women who are involved behind the scenes with AMA and, and, you know, and Bud being a former player, we're all super competitive. You know, we all love Mizzou. We all want to see Mizzou ascend back to where it used to be. Um, and we all live in Columbia. So, you know, if Mizzou does well, local businesses does well. You know, the average fan does well because now there's excitement. There's a winning culture. So for us, being in the SEC, I mean, that presents a, a problem in itself. And uh, we just want to overcome and be the best that we can possibly be in this NIL space because it's going to be the determining factor between getting – very good players and uh, being at the bottom of the SEC. We're talking to Lawrence Bowers. You probably remember him as the Mizzou basketball player. He's now the executive director. He's referring to it as AMA. It's Advancing Missouri Athletes. It's the Mizzou Collective, uh, which is where all of this NIL stuff is going. Uh, Lawrence, when you look at the way that this has gone thus far, a lot of people look at the NIL over the last year and they say, this is, this is the Wild West. Like, there, There's no real way to be able to crack down on anything. It seems like nobody really knows what it was or where it is going. Do you feel like we have, or you have really, a better grasp on what NIL is and what it's going to be now and what it's going to mean for Mizzou now than when this first came into effect, what, I guess, 18 months or so ago now? Well, I will say this, you know, the Wild Wild West term, you know, that's that's one that's been put out there since the beginning of uh, well, July of last year when it was passed. And that's, you know, that term is rightfully used because um, it's a it's an evolving door. Like everything is very new. And, uh, you know, I would love to say that we got it completely figured out. But, you know, just like you just saw, another legislation was passed. So there's going to be more things. There's going to be more um you know, uh, more policies and, and, and more regulations that come about. But um, I will say this, that everybody at AMA, we all operate on a very strong moral compass. Uh, integrity is at the beginning and at the head and at the end of all of our decisions and work. Uh, we're just trying to build a better Mizzou uh, by doing things the right way. Uh, and doing things the right way, it's going to take everybody from the outside um, to contribute. And, uh, you know, I just think, I just think with NIL, I just hope, well, I hope, I hope people understand the importance of it because, like I said, you're asking someone who 
has a little bit of bias. You know, I was a player at Mizzou. I didn't have the capability of having NIL. There were a lot of long nights, you know, winning 31 games in a season and, and not having any financial, you know, availability to, to put food in my refrigerator. Like, that was tough. So, for me, I just hope, and, you know, I, and I'll express this as much as I can, I hope that people understand that NIL is taking care of our players now. So, I, my follow-up to that, Lawrence, is how how do you guys determine, or I, maybe this is a, an important part of this as well, do you determine who gets the money that is put into this NIL fund and how much each individual player is getting within that NIL fund. And that could go towards programs as well. How do you determine which programs get what allotment of the money? Well, we are focusing on men's football and men's basketball right now uh, with, with high hopes of being able to um, spread to wealth amongst all players and all programs. But uh, everything that's done through AMA is at the discretion of uh, myself and Bud Sasser and Greg Steinhoff and our board members. Um, like I alluded to earlier, everything is done with integrity and with a moral compass. And August 28th will be a really big day for us. Although Governor Parsons signed you know, the, the new legislation, it really won't go into effect until August 28th. And then, you know, you will have the likes of being able to bring in uh, Dennis Gates and, and Eli Drinkwitz on um, some of the, you know, some of the decisions and, and just making sure everybody is aligned. So for the time being, um, you know, our board members and, and myself and Buzz Sasson and Greg Steinhoff, we're doing our absolute best to make sure that everything is spread out to the athletes uh, that we see uh, best fit. And I know that for a lot of people, we're getting some of these texts as well. When it comes to the recruiting side of this, Lawrence, I don't know mm-hmm. how much you can you can give us in terms of the information here, but it, how does that work in terms of the collaboration between yourself or Bud Sasser and then Eli Drinkwitz and Dennis Gates? Like when they're going to a recruit, can they go to that recruit and say, "Hey, uh, talk to the the collective. They've got stuff that they can tell you about." How, how does that work with the recruiting side and what you guys are doing at AMA? Absolutely not. Uh, we cannot have any affiliation or any type of contact with any recruit um, or athlete unless they are enrolled at the University of Missouri. So the the, the reason why NIL is the number one recruiting tool. Uh, it's because what can happen is, you know, Elijah Drinkwitz or Dennis Gates can, you know, give examples and, and talk about what's being done on campus with their current athletes who are enrolled um, by AMA. So, you know, they can they can talk about that. And that right there is obviously the, the biggest enticement that a coach can give to a recruit in this modern day of uh, NIL. But we cannot, you know, I can't talk to a single recruit. I can't, you know, I can't reach out to his family. There, there's nothing that we can do until a player enrolls and is considered a student athlete at the University of Missouri. Lawrence, final question for me, for me, and we'll get you out of here on this one. Thanks so much for your time today. We're talking to Lawrence Bowers, former Mizzou basketball player, now the executive director at Advancing Mizzou Athletes. Is there anything else that you think people have as a – uh, misrepresentation of what you guys are doing or what the NIL space is or somebody something that people maybe should know that they might not know because you're in that space every day and uh, we're on the outside looking in. Is there anything else that you think Mizzou fans need to know about what you guys are doing? Um, I just think, you know, I think the message is very clear. You know, you have two former athletes, guys who had a lot of success at Mizzou and myself and Bud Sasser. 
uh, guys who moved back to Columbia, um, guys who want to see their respective programs get back to the top. Um, so, you know, we're like I said, we're operating based on the merits of loving our school, loving the city, and, uh, you know, collective. We're, we're called a collective for a reason. I'll say that again. It's going to take every single person who bleeds black and gold, who loves the University of Missouri, who loves football, loves basketball, uh, to join in our efforts to try to make Mizzou great again. You know, and as far as misconceptions, I think the the biggest one um, that I've seen is, you know, TSF or AMA, as I talked to you earlier. Um, we definitely consider it an and ordeal, not an either or ordeal. So I encourage everyone to participate in both uh, and, and just, you know, know that Mizzou is on the ascension. We are, uh, we're putting our best foot forward and uh, things are going to turn around here. So um, I just encourage everybody to, to become a part of something that's going to be great. And uh, I will say that that can start on July 16th at the uh, Carolyn Bowers alumni game. You know, we're hoping to have 10 to 12,000 people there. That'll be a great opportunity to restore the roar. Um, you know, there'll be some, information about nil but even though that game is a charity it'll be a great time for all of us to come together as tigers and remember the exciting times and hopefully through nil through ama um we can restore the roar like i said and uh and become great again there's a bunch of information about that over at lawrence bowers twitter account as well at l bowers b-o-w-e-r-s underscore 21 check it out over there tamari carroll lawrence bowers they're the team captains you've got marcus dinman phil pressy jimmy mckinney it's a bunch of the guys that i watched growing up it's gonna be a ton of fun uh to be able to go out there if you want any more information check it out on his twitter account lawrence thanks so much for the time man i know this has to be an unbelievably busy time for all of you guys over at advancing missouri athletic athletes rather hopefully we'll We'll talk with you again soon as you guys get this thing going. Hey, you know, I'm always uh, available for you, man. I appreciate everything you guys do. Great show. I'm a big fan. M-I-Z. Z-O-U. That's Lawrence Bowers joining us here on 101 ESPN. All of this stuff is fascinating to me, Alex. I'm not going to pretend as if I understand all of it because there is a ton (laughs) that goes into what they're doing. And somebody on the text line said, hey, can you guys explain to us what NIL is? What does this stand for? It's name, image, and likeness. And for decades, this this was the question of how do you pay student athletes without making them employees? That was a big question. It's why the, the names weren't on the college football NCAA video games. It's why you can't get jerseys with their names on the back of it or the trading cards. Yep. And now they're doing the opposite. Now, now they are actually going to start doing trading cards for Mizzou athletes. They are going to start they having bringing back the video games. They, they might I be. They we'll were see on in, that. Yeah. Uh, but they're going to start selling, like if you go to Mizzou and you're going to a football game or you're going to Illinois, you're going to a basketball game, maybe you're an Arkansas fan, whatever it is, they're probably going to start having jerseys that are for sale that have their names on the back and the individual player will get a portion of those sales now because of their name, image, and likeness being used in that. So that's part of it. The other part of it is this, what Lawrence Bowers is doing, and it's called a collective. And basically what they're doing is collecting money from fans, boosters, um, maybe it's businesses, whatever it is. They're collecting this money, and it's all going into one fund that they then allocate. So, like, for example, Luther Burden is the big-time recruiting get at Mizzou this year, right? He's one of the top players in the country recruiting-wise. He ended up committing to Mizzou. Once he gets on campus, got on campus in the spring, but when this thing starts in August, they can allocate this money to individual players. 
I would imagine Luther Burden is going to get a large amount of money because he is one of the most prominent players currently on campus. The basketball side as well. If they get a big time recruit, like they just signed uh, the kid from Missouri State, Isaiah Mosley, who's Mm -hmm. from Columbia. There was the report that came out that he got a house, a car, and like $250,000 potentially. But how does that play into the NIL? Because the NIL is a bulk of money, correct? Is this another side of it? So it it can be companies that also are part of this as well. So it's it's a lot. And let me ask you this, because the way that Lawrence framed it, I thought he did it perfectly. So the, the, the collective fund, the AMA, essentially what the website is, is this a way for players to feel like they're quote unquote a part of the team or they were a part of getting these recruits to the school or am I like am I, am I missing something here You're talking about like fans yeah like them, like if fans donate money that's a way for them like this is an awful example but like the Packers and the fans that they have a stake in the team they feel like they're a part of the ownership sure is this a way for fans that are donating to this and boosters donating to this to feel like well they're a part of the recruitment process I mean, same reason that boosters donate for anything um, the stadium, they feel like yeah. they're a part of the whole thing. Yeah. Okay. Wh- whatever it may be, like you're giving money to your favorite team because you want that team to be better. Yeah. Right? So that, that's kind of the way that it works. It, it, there's a lot going on and it's a lot to get a grasp on, but what they're doing is going to be huge in terms of landing more athletes. And Illinois has one of these, whatever your favorite college program is, what we just talked about with Lawrence Bowers, your favorite program probably has something very similar where you could do the same thing for them that gotcha. Mizzou fans are now soon going to be able to do at Missouri. He mentioned TSF tiger scholarship fund. And this is where I think things are going to get really tough for college athletics. Alex, they're asking for a lot of money in a lot of different areas now. They're asking for money for the Tiger Scholarship Fund, which Illinois probably has something that's basically their equivalent of that. They're asking for money for facilities, and they're asking for money for the NIL. Eventually, there's only so much money to go around, and that's where I'm going to be interested to see, okay, what ends up getting the short stick of things? I think if I had to guess, the short straw is going to come to the facilities because they're going to continue to want to get the players And eventually those players, if they are asked in an honest moment, what would you rather have money going to you or playing in a stadium that is two years old, basically, or looks two years old as opposed to being 15 years old, they're going to want the money. And so the money is going to start shifting from what is now facilities towards some of those players getting a a, a larger portion of that fund. So it's going to be interesting to see how it works, man, but there's a lot going on in college athletics that have completely changed the game. Huge. Thanks to Lawrence Bowers for giving us so much of his time today. I feel like I have a little bit better of a grasp on what's going on, even though it's, I don't, it's a I'm lot still confused to try to understand. That's, that's just me coming up in about 15 minutes. We'll finish the show with one's got to go. But next the brewers are going through right now. What the Cardinals went through in June of 2021. We'll explain it next year on one one ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. The Brewers are going through right now what the Cardinals went through last June alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kiley. One's got to go coming up in about 10 minutes or so. 65780 is the air comfort service tax line. 
If you give us four options, we will tell you which ones got to go. Alex, here's what the Brewers have done since May 31st. They are 3-12 and 12 overall in terms of their record. They're 27th in Major League Baseball in OPS at 625 as their OPS as a team. Their rotation is 23rd in Major League Baseball with a 5.4 ERA. And in the bullpen, it hasn't been a whole lot better, which is surprising because that's supposed to be their strength. They have a 5.1 ERA from their bullpen in this stretch of a little more than two weeks now, 25th in Major League Baseball. If you look back at what the Cardinals did but in this same stretch last year, Alex, when they started to lose all of their momentum, 5-10 and 10 overall. So they were actually better in this stretch somehow than what you've seen so far from the Brewers. A 632 OPS, which was 28th in baseball, which is basically the same as what you've seen so far from the Brewers. The Cardinals rotation last year at a 5.9 ERA, which was 23rd, the exact same as what you've seen so far uh, in this stretch from the Milwaukee Brewers. And if you look at the bullpen side of things, the Cardinals were at a 4.9 ERA. That was 23rd in baseball. Again, the Brewers are 25th with a 5.1. The Brewers are almost identical in terms of all of the statistical categories and the overall record right now to what we saw from the Cardinals a year ago. The big thing, though, that happened last year is at the same time that the Cardinals were going through their struggles, the Brewers were on the upward trajectory. What the Cardinals have to do while the Brewers are essentially without for a decent amount of time here, Woodruff and Peralta and Aaron Ashby yesterday left the game. He was removed with forearm and tightness. Isn't Colt Wong still out for them? He is. It sounds like he could be back by next weekend, mm-hmm. but this is the time where the Cardinals now need to take advantage of what's happening with the Brewers. The Brewers did it last year. That was when they made their aggressive uh, move to go get Willie Adamas. They were on a rocket ship while the Cardinals were sinking in the ocean. The, the Cardinals have to take advantage. It starts this weekend in Boston, and then they've got a four-game set yep. head-to-head against Milwaukee. You have to bury them. I know you can't win the division in mid to late June. You can absolutely lose it, though, and we saw that at this time a year ago. I think the Brewers might be getting ready to head in that same direction well, right now. And this is going to change the narrative for everyone who has been saying over the last week since we've been talking about the victories over the Pirates and the Reds of, oh, well, they only beat bad teams and they're not good against good teams. Well, you're about to find that out because Boston has been playing a lot better since the early portion of their season. They've turned it around. And yes, Milwaukee is going through their swoon in June, but the Cardinals also have not won a series, if I'm not mistaken, against Milwaukee this season. It's just been either a series split or they've lost the series. So this is absolutely the opportunity for not only you to take a little bit of a gap in the NL Central, but it's also a way for you to prove the people that are saying, well, they only win in the NL Central. Well, you could take that narrative and you could shove it back at them because you're beating up on the teams that you're that you're not supposed to beat up on in that narrative. Yeah, they can really start to kind of work their way towards running away with the division if they can take three or four in Milwaukee coming up this week. Because, I, look, I said but when we got we were talking about Milwaukee, you know, you're going to find out what they were made of when we started June because their schedule just got extremely tough for them. And we've seen they've been dealing with the injuries. It became the June that we thought they might run into, and they're just playing poor baseball right now. So if you're the Cardinals, yeah, to BK's point, last year the Cardinals lost the division in June. You look back at the Cardinals, and really the separator also besides the June month was just the fact of the matter that the Brewers were better against the other teams in the division than you were. I think that the separation was the amount of games that the Cardinals were behind the Brewers when it finished up at the end of the season. So 
for the Cardinals, it, it's going to come down to, okay, can you take advantage of Milwaukee while they are down and then just continue to play your stretch of baseball that you're playing right now? Look, I get it. They're beating up on bad teams. They're beating Pittsburgh and Cincinnati, but you have to do that. Yep. Otherwise, you're not going to run away from Milwaukee, who's in the middle of a stretch where they've played a winning team essentially every series this month except for their last one where they played Washington, and it doesn't get much easier the rest of the way because, sure, they're in Cincinnati now for a three-game set, but then they've got the the Cardinals, the Blue Jays, and the Rays. All really good teams. So they, they have the potential to be knocked out of this division race here in the month of June. And then their deadline becomes a much more difficult task because, let's be honest, if you're not winning the NL Central, it's going to be tough for you to potentially crawl into the playoff race as a wild card team. Could this weekend slash week against Milwaukee, could this... In terms of the national stage of big of national analysts looking at the Cardinals, could this change their opinion? This game series against Boston and Milwaukee in terms of a World Series contender, I think it's the next month. Yes, this plays into it, but I think this will be more of a people nationally say, okay, the Central is clearly for the Cardinals. The the Cardinals are going to win this division World Series if they do well here. Where the World Series conversation starts is when they starting on the Fourth of July play against the Atlanta Braves down in Atlanta who have won, I think it is 13 straight mm-hmm. or something like Last that right night. now. They've got four games down in Atlanta against them. Then you got four games at home against Philadelphia. And then you've got three games at home against LA. That stretch of 11 games right there, that's when nationally, if you do really well, you go like eight and three in those 11 games against Atlanta, Philly, and Los Angeles. That's when people will start to take you seriously. But most importantly, that series against the Dodgers. Well, uh, and the I Dodgers think, are the team that are the measuring sticks. And for I think you can flip that also and say that whether it's just this stretch of games or in this next month, could also turn the opinion to, oh, they're going to have to make a move at the trade deadline. Yeah. Yeah, and that that kind of it goes hand in hand with Jack Flaherty, right? Mm-hmm. Jack Flaherty is going to be a huge piece of what the Cardinals are trying to do against these teams. He's going to get a start against Milwaukee. He's going to get a start most likely either at the end of the series against Chicago or at the beginning of the series against Miami. Like you're going to need him to do well in those games. He can't have a repeat of the performance that he had against Pittsburgh. And I mentioned how last year the Brewers started taking off when the Cardinals struggled in June. In the month of June last year, the, the Brewers were 21-8. and eight. The Cardinals so far in this same stretch, they've started 10-7. and seven. They've played pretty well. It's not that they've been a bad team, but you got to start racking up the wins. If you're going to take off the way that the Brewers did last year, where it felt like the division was over in June, like we all kind of came to the conclusion of, man, it would take a historic comeback for this team to be able to win the division. The wild card was still there for you. It was possible, but the division felt just completely out of out of the realm of possibility. Uh, you can do that, but it's going to take you going on a, on a run here against Boston, Milwaukee, Chicago, et cetera. Someone said going six and five in this eleven game stretch would make me feel good. I, I think you got to go. Seven. I think they're talking about Atlanta, Philly, and the oh, Dodgers. Okay, I thought they meant that this stretch. one. I got you. This yeah, upcoming stretch great. where you're on the road, this this road stretch, seven what? games against Boston and Milwaukee. I think five and two is how you feel good about five that. Five and two, four and three. I don't know how how I'd feel about it. Yeah, I think five and two is what you're looking for mm-hmm. here in this road stretch. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. Final quick thing here ahead of this series against Boston, Alex. And 65780 is your comfort service tax line for one's got to go coming up here in about five minutes. As the Cardinals are heading to Boston, we talked a lot about Xander Bogarts and whether or not he would be a fit here in St. Louis as we get closer and closer to the trade deadline. I don't think he's going to be traded at this point, given the fact that the the Red Sox, as you mentioned, have been playing much better. They're now four games above 500. They're not going to be punting on this season unless something goes horribly wrong the way that it has recently for the Brewers. Are we done having those conversations? 
Tanner, Alex, about the shortstop market and whether or not the Cardinals need to add one at the deadline, given how well Tommy Edmonds seems to be adjusting. Yeah, I'm done with it. I think Tommy Edmonds my shortstop moving forward, especially now with Donovan and Gorman. I think you can look other areas in terms of improving your team and spending the money that you were going to spend on a shortstop, whether it's the outfield if Tyler O'Neill doesn't get back right, although I feel like he's trending upwards, or it's on the pitching side of things. But I think I'm officially done with the shortstop conversation because of Tommy Edmond. Yeah, I think I'm done with it for this year. I think the focus now shifts towards finding whether it be another starter, depending on how Flaherty looks when you get to the trade deadline, or adding to the bullpen and making that more of a strength for the Cardinals. I'm not 100% convinced, though, that you're done with the conversation of looking at shortstop in terms of in the future, looking at 2023 and beyond. I'm not convinced of that just yet, and part of that just comes down to if I continue to see good defense from Nolan Gorman at second base, and how Tommy Evan looks at shortstop continuing defensively there. So I'm not convinced that we're done with the conversation of do they still need a shortstop in the future, I think we're definitely done with it for the 2022 season, though. I think I'm done with it. I think I'm in in line with Alex at this point because of Mason Wynn. Because if you, even if you don't think that the next five years Tommy Edmond is going to be your starting shortstop, I think the Cardinals are approaching it where within the next couple of years, it's probably going to be Mason Wynn. Maybe it's not next year, but by 2024, I think that's the expectation of when he should be arriving. He's crushing the baseball right now down in 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 double uh, A. He's got an 825 OPS for them. He's hitting for a decent amount of power. He was doing the same thing in Peoria where he had a 970 OPS to start out the season. And he has maybe the best arm in all of minor league baseball right now where he's just he's an unbelievable athlete. So I think he's going to be your future at the position. And right now, Tommy Edmond has shown me enough so far where I kind of believe in him as being the present. So I, I'm done with that conversation. That could change, of course, if Edmund really falls off the face of the earth or Gorman shows that it's just not working for him at second base. But I don't foresee either of those two things happening. I think that the shortstop situation is is pretty firm now with those guys. And man, is that a far cry from what we expected coming into this year. Coming up next, let's play a game of one's got to go. You give us four options. We will tell you which one's got to go. Coming up next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. This is PK and Ferrario. Time now for One's Gotta Go. We offer up the talking points and you get to pick which one's gotta go on 101 ESPN. Six five seven eight zero is the Air Comfort Service tax line. If you give us four options, we'll tell you which one's got to go. Coming up in about ten minutes is the fast lane. And by the way, I got to tell you, one on one ESPN's mobile app is loaded with a ton of awesome giveaways this month. If you already have the app, check out the rewards section. You'll see all the giveaways there. If you don't have it yet. Download it. Get registered today. You'll have a chance to win $1,000 in cash prizes, a portable Traeger grill, a rolling Yeti cooler, a signed Ryan O'Reilly jersey, so much more over there. They've got the Solo Stove, which we just got a couple of weeks ago. It's fantastic. It's basically a smokeless bonfire. All of those contests going on right now on the 101 ESPN app. All right, BK let's get to one's got to go. fire pit and T-Bone got an Ethernet cord. That's right. It pretty much explains both Next, of us. I'll get nails to hang my... Uh pictures one gotta go cardinals edition 
The fact that T-Bone has to buy He's things. He's going to get thumbtacks to hang up his pictures on the, the wall. The fact that T-Bone's got to buy things like on a monthly basis to put it in his apartment <laughs> makes this. <laughs> It'll be like the uh, the no. music video for Photograph. Look at the food. It was a terrible Nickelback. I love that song. One's got to go. Great band. Jordan Walker, Paul Goldschmidt, Dylan Carlson, or Tyler O'Neill. Let me let me remove let me let me amend this. Say, I think this one's pretty easy. Walker, Carlson, Bader, or O'Neal. Oh wow, you made this even harder now. Um, I think we'll get Carlson, Bader, O'Neal. I think we'll get rid of O'Neal here. Whew. That's an amazing. What? That's an amazing one year flip because I would have said Bader easily last season, but Tyler O'Neal, although the potential's there, it's up and down and Harrison Bader has finally turned into a consistent player and then you're getting the defense so um, I can't believe I'm saying that but I think O'Neal see I think I would get rid of Bader I, I think O'Neal has because O'Neal's Bader all the tools I mean could be I mean he, he's got all the tools you need in a player Carlson I think is just an all around good baseball player Walker is going to be a stud it almost looks like and you take a look at Harrison Bader I mean he's hitting 258 this year look he provides the great What's solid gold hitting? glove defense I mean O'Neal's coming off the injury so oh. Bader's Bader's basically so Corey right around what I expect him to be but I mean if you got O'Neal clicking on all cylinders I mean you're talking about an MVP caliber player I think Carlson can play solid center field for you if you were to drop Bader so I gotta get rid of Bader here but don't you have MVP qualities in Paul Goldschmidt than Jordan Walker. Yeah, I, I think your defense takes a massive hit without Harrison Bader out there. And think about the base running that you're giving up as well. See, I, I've liked what and I saw. And your double leadoff is I, gone. Yeah, well, yeah, I can make another double leadoff. I don't so. know if you can. With no, who? I can. Who? Give me a minute to think on that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, Brendan I, Donovan. I, I actually agree. I agree with Alex. I think if you had to get rid of one of these guys, the one that you could replace, not easily, but the one that is easiest to replace of these four options i think it's tyler o'neill and i can't believe we're saying that coming off of the season that he had a year ago but i think that's the right answer there's the text alex stick to hockey you scrub six five seven eight oh is the air comfort service tax line i appreciate tanner for texting that in you spelled genius wrong six three six one's gotta go appetizer edition (laughs) nachos potato skins spin dip or buffalo wings. Spinach dip, I'm assuming. Spinach and artichoke dip. Yep. It was like a fancy right, spin the, dip. Get the spin dip and, and the what spinach was the last dip one? out of here. Uh, buffalo wings. Buffalo, yeah. Spinach artichoke dip has to get go here. Get out of here. What? Potato skins is oh clearly the one that's got to go. Man, I had no some way. outstanding potato skins at Biggie's over this past weekend. Probably the best potato skins I've had in a long time. Potato skins, if you I, make I, them I right, order that. If somebody else is ordering it for the table, I will eat them. But I'm not paying money for potato skins. Look who's coming through the door right now. It's uh, it's uppity BK. Oh no, potato skins for me because it's too it's too greasy with cholesterol. I can't eat these with a fork like I can with calamari. Cuts a candy bar and eats it. It's calamari. That's what I'd prefer over potato skins. Well, yeah, I'd much rather have calamari. You're 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 an idiot. It's it's spinach dip. (laughs) Six five seven eight zero is the Air Comfort Service X line. One's got to go automobile edition. Who calls it that? Automobile. Okay, it's two syllables, Me. man. It's not three. We need a weekend. Automobile. We really need a weekend to say it faster. Automobile. Uh, Still three. Who needs a car? A sedan. <laughs> it's like a regular four door car. Pickup truck, SUV, or minivan. Did I say that one right? 
Yeah, you made you said a good job on that one. Uh, pickup truck has to go right now. Really? You see how much gas is right now? <laughs> oh, <laughs> You're not dropping two hundred dollars sure. on a pickup truck. That's I've fair. always wanted a pickup truck, but I can't afford to. to a monthly income for a pickup truck See, right I, now. I, I got to get rid of the minivan. Dude, I can't picture me in a I'm minivan. I'm in a minivan like obsession right now. I saw a Kia, I saw a Kia. I saw a Kia Carnival the other day. Best minivan I've ever seen. I want one. Can't afford one. I I got I can't They're picture myself in a minivan. They're so expensive. I'm sure if hey, if you are a yes. minivan <laughs> provider, please uh, would love to endorse and talk about how great your minivan is for my two children. Yeah, we, we would be happy to endorse your product if it's a good product. Only if it's a good one. 65780 is the air comfort service text line for One's Gotta Can Go. I am going to go with, for right now, minivans. Five years from now, we could retalk. We could talk about this again. Maybe at that yeah, point yeah, in time, I'll be interested yeah, but, in well, the minivan. <laughs> one's not a problem, but when you get to multiple, that's when it becomes an issue. Yeah. Uh, one's got to go chores edition. Doing the laundry, doing dishes, getting your car washed, or mowing the lawn. Chores. I thought he said tours at first. I was like, (laughs) tour the laundry room? Where are we going? (laughs) Chores edition. Laundry, Uh, dishes, car wash, mowing the lawn. Car wash. I agree. That's that's the one like, Uh, there's there's two times in a year that I wash my car. It's once winter is over when I get all of the salt off of it. And it's right before the winter to make sure it's clean <laughs> for all of the salt. Other than that, I never wash my car. Just run it through a car wash. That's easy. Yeah, Chore taken I... care of pretty quickly. Yeah, but they always, uh, none of them are yeah, They never They work. don't get the everything I, out. It's just, nobody can clean it like no I can boy. clean it. I'm getting rid of, what, what mow the lawn now? It's get, all soothing, I'm getting rid though. of, I don't even have to mow the lawn. I'm getting rid of <laughs> laundry. Because I got to go drive yeah, you gotta go to the road room. <laughs> and go to the laundry room where everybody's Man, at. has to drive 20 I, minutes there and back. I feel, like Alex when I, go into, I feel like Alex when I go into the laundry room. I T-bone. put my headphones on. Don't talk to me. I'm just here to drop my clothes off and leave. T-Bone, the best purchase in your future is going to be when you purchase a washer and dryer. Oh, I yes, promise you this. When, I, when we bought ours the first time. Hey, baby steps, man. I just started with the Ethernet cable. <laughs> yeah. That's true. You get those pins next time. Hey, we'll talk to you guys on Monday at 11 a.m. The Fast Lane's coming up from 2 to 6 here on 101 ESPN. Have a happy Father's Day, everybody. You've been listening to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.